You better be listening to Slizoids or I must break you. You cut yourself off. Got to live in the world to be an artist. I gotta get serious about my career. A career is when you make money. I'm a painter. To the bathrooms. Artist. You paint pictures people are ashamed to hang in their homes. What's wrong with him? No meaning in his life. Mike's eyes. When we were together, he'd say we were the only couple. It made me feel so special. He was fresh out of Ohio. What did he know about the city? He seemed so innocent. Mike's smile. I looked up in the sky and saw the moon was full. And I thought of you. I did everything he told me to do. And anything he wanted me to do. Mike's touch. There's nothing I could have found out about Mike that I hadn't already suspected. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, we are taking on a director that supposedly makes really bad films, but I'm kind of hoping to love him. And, and to start off, they're, uh, they're two short movies, so he's already good in my books. Um, so join the sleaze, baby. That is right. Uh, uh, we also tie on uh, all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. And Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over five years. There's like 130 bonus episodes over on the Patreon, as well as like 40 coming up on 50 bonus transmission uh, uh, episodes where oh, we talk yeah. about new release genre films. And there's been a lot coming out so far this year. People have been talking about. So if you're interested in any of that, patreon.com slash podcast. Um, and speaking of which, we actually did have a lot of people make the jump this week. So we're going to give them their shout outs right here. Um, we had uh, Aramol Ray Donovan. We had Justin Hitchcock. Uh, we had Nick Longo. We had Christian. We had Dylan Harrington sign up for an entire year of the show at a little bit of a reduced monthly rate. Once again, for anyone who's interested in doing that, you can get a whole year of the show in advance. We appreciate that. Um, we had Michael Lane sign up. We had Matthew Ledger signed up. We had Biren 53, Logan Giesman, uh, Fran Evers, Christopher Fitzpatrick, Jacob Klein, Aiden Hadley, James Cameron. Uh, <laughs> nice. All right. You know, nice. probably, you know, you share a name with the legend. If not, um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's Josh L. Sure. I'm a little concerned about this one. There can only be one. Um, <laughs> but thank you anyway. Uh, we had... <laughs> Andrew Parker sign up. We had Sam Canini. Uh, we had Bruno P. And last but not least, uh, Teal Chilco. Uh, so thanks so much to all of you folks for signing up. Hope you're enjoying those bonus episodes, and we very much appreciate the support. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's uh, it for the one plug. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, and I see the stats personally, I can see you right now listening on both those platforms. Uh, give us a good old rating and review over there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners to everyone who does. And again, you know, it's, we, we've been having some nice ones come in lately. It makes us feel nice and cozy when we get them. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for our show, you can get that 
put on basically anything that you can think of. If you want a pen, a pillow, a hoodie, a just a straight up poster, uh, that link is in the description as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com. But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another uh, week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us, and we would have had uh, a special guest, Andrew Jupin, of the We Hate Movies show uh, on for his first time. We finally collected our last host of We Hate Movies, who yes, had, who had been him. strategically evading us, but I... Uh, <laughs> I, I hung out with the boys when they were here in Toronto and we were Andrew was like, dude, I feel like shit. You haven't invited me on. And so we finally made it happen <laughs> two weeks ago and we talked about some, some uh, 80s cult horror trash, uh, specifically uh, ones that Andrew is an expert in ever since he was a child. So we talked about the uh, Chud films. Uh, we did the dirty New York City creature B movie original from 1984. And then we talked about the very tacky and kind of lazy <laughs> sequel in name only zombie comedy called Chud 2 Bud the Chud from yes. 1989. And we, we kind of went more in depth than I expected for a movie called Chud 2 Bud the Chud, but it was kind of fun to talk about. Actually, that's true. We did go surprisingly <laughs> long for Bud the Chud. Um, yeah, he's got his own theme song and everything. Not quite Tokyo Drifter, but what are you gonna do? Yeah. You know, hey, Garrett Graham mugging as the uh, zombie from Day of the Dead in like doing some Encino Man <laughs> antics. There yeah. was some stuff to talk about for sure, and we did that with <laughs> Andrew two weeks ago over on the main feed. For anyone interested, if you haven't heard that, go back and check it out. Uh, but uh, last week over on the Patreon. We had uh, we 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 did a little bit of a left turn. Um, we uh, we we had some fun with Andrew, but you know we 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 wanted to get into a little bit more of a dramatic mode. And we talked about I think for the first time we really you know leaned into. We talked Mr. John Travolta because he's come up a couple mm -hmm. times on the show, mostly in De Palma films that we've talked about, Carrie and Blowout. But we had never really yep. committed an episode to the to the man. And we specifically wanted to talk about his uh, star making turns as a sort of bit of a musical heartthrob sensation, not Grease. We talked about uh, his uh, bleak disco drama, Saturday Night Fever from 1977, directed by John Badham, uh, alongside James Bridges' uh, honky-tonk country western variation, uh, Urban Cowboy from 1980. And we were actually surprised that that was actually probably a better sequel to Saturday Night Fever than the actual sequel. Yeah. Um, and uh, both shared the fact that they were, you know, based on articles about very real modern working class subcultures of people who, you know, uh, took to performative sensual nightlife uh, in order to escape their, you know, mundane work and, and home lives. And both of them had killer soundtracks and charming pretty boy asshole Travolta performances uh, at the center of them. So it ended up being quite the pairing. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting to uh, to watch Travolta in those two, because like, you know, he's obviously he's got the moves, you know, he's got the swagger and everything. But the, the characters that he's playing in those movies are actually incredibly dark. And I don't know how many people really remember all of the context and what happens in that in those films it's uh it's a, they're very bleak honestly um for the most part there's some there's some moments especially with our urban cowboy a little bit more uh got a little bit more of a positive swing in overall but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, despite the fact that both films are uh, his character being forced to reckon with uh masculinity in some capacity mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's fantastic 
Yeah. So if you uh, are interested in that episode at all, patreon.com slash these sides podcast. That was last week's exclusive episode for the patrons. And actually, we we did it a little bit as set up for this week, which we are going to move into uh, right now. We have a very special uh, guest uh, joining us. He is the uh, programmer of the local Toronto repertory series called Neon Dreams, one of my personal favorites uh, in town. That guest is Brendan Ross. Brendan, how you doing? Hey guys, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, <clears throat> I am, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here and follow up some other James Bridges, uh, another James Bridges episode. Um, yeah, no, we set it up perfectly just for you because you kind of picked a little bit of maybe an underseen one or one that's maybe harder to find. And we were like, dude, we haven't talked about James Bridges before. And it actually came up a couple weeks ago because uh, with Sean Fennessy, we talked about uh, Colossus, the Forbin Project, which was actually mm-hmm. uh, he adapted that book into a screenplay. And it was actually our first time even mentioning his name. And we went, OK, do you know what? We we finally we have to jump in. We have to talk about him. And I'm really glad we did because we we really loved actually. I loved Urban Cowboy and I loved the film we're going to be talking about today, too. But uh, uh, Brendan, I think a, a good place to start and to get some early plugging in for you. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Neon Dreams real quick. And that might give people, I think, a, a good vibe of what they can expect from your pairing that I'll have you introduce as well. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Um, yeah, Neon Dreams is something I started about uh, oof, it's eight years ago, if you include the uh, pandemic when theaters were closed. Uh, but I kind of started off as a way to celebrate neo-noir cinema. Uh, I was mostly living in the 80s. I've kind of, you know, stretching out to the 70s once in a while. Um, so a lot of neon noir, I guess, would be my genre and really just films that are heavy, heavy in colors, uh, heavy in synthesizers uh, and really just big films that look great great on the big screen and uh, contribute to a big collective experience watching them uh, together. So that was where I started. I also didn't realize I was going to be doing it eight years, so I feel like I stretched myself pretty thin, and since then I've kind of broadened the scope a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. just doing a lot of kind of 70s New Hollywood, stuff like that, uh, that all just kind of has the same look and feel and just general vibe as, uh, as kind of what I started doing, which is, you know... A lot of William Friedkin, a lot of uh, De Palma, uh, just kind of that stuff that uh, really just looks good on a big screen and uh, is gives me the opportunity to kind of dig up films like this one that have kind of either been forgotten by time uh, or are cult classics that don't really play a lot in theaters. Um, yeah, yeah just no, I, can, I can say I've been very happy going to a lot of the screen and anyone who's a fan of this show will definitely love the series and the kind of films that he play. A lot of them are ones that we've talked about on the show. I mean, recently he's done things like <clears throat> Manhunter and Sorcerer early on. He was doing things like To Live and Die in L.A. and like Streets of Fire, which are all things that we, we really love. And oh, then, yeah, yeah, every once in a while, like I watched because of your series, I watched Straight Time for the first time. Right. Yeah. Um, mm. Which is actually something that we're going to be talking about on the, the show soon. Uh, oh, as, as a result, we're going to be talking about some prison films soon. Um, but that was one that I watched for the first and talking about sort of 70s uh, sort of dramatic, a little bit more mm-hmm. dramatic neon noir, which I think definitely suits what we're going to be talking about today. But, yeah, I think that that anyone who is into that vibe, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and uh, yeah, so, Brendan, we have the guests bring the double feature with them. So what two films have you brought with you this week and why did you pair them together? So I brought Mike's Murder and a film called Heartbreakers, which are both from 1984. Uh, and the easy answer is I really wanted to talk about Heartbreakers because I'm screening it. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice <laughs> to kind of talk about it a little bit before beforehand and see if we can drum some interest, because let me tell you, it's a tough sell. <laughs> uh, but really, the reason I've, I've <clears throat> since I knew about this podcast, I really wanted to 
uh, you know, conjure up the, uh, the, the ultimate double feature. And it took me a long time to figure it out. Uh, and I think that I realized that these two films work side by side for a number of reasons. I mean, you know, again, the obvious one is that they're films that I both love. Uh, but I think specifically these are kind of obscure films that evoke something from sort of an era before it. Like they both kind of feel like, although aesthetically they very much fit into the mid 80s uh, kind of vibe, but they really do feel like films that are taken out of like the 70s and have that kind of 70s hangover feel. Um, and they're both these L.A. films that they look like L.A. You can recognize a lot of the locations. Like, it doesn't not look like L.A., but it's L.A. kind of shot from a different angle. And maybe, like, certain alleyways, certain images that you'll see are not typical of an L.A. film. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to talk about those side by side just because they're, uh, yeah, they're just very different L.A. movies. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm I'm very excited. They're both very two very kind of like lonely sort of quasi romance films a little bit in a way that obviously take on qualities of other genres like the like the neo noir thriller or yeah. with yeah. Heartbreakers a little bit more of a sort of sexy buddy hangout film a little bit. And uh, both also I was surprised to learn have like very heavy autobiographical elements um, and uh, and a real sense of emotional fragility to them that uh, may be based on some of the location work and some that you might expect a grittier, pulpier movie to take place in. Um, it really makes them it's a it's it makes them quite interesting and moving uh, in the, in their own way. So I was I was surprised that, you know, how much connective tissue there actually was here, even if, you know, they are doing different things uh, dramatically and on a superficial level. No, I think you said that perfectly. I mean, they're, they're different genres, but they still kind of pull from the same wells and that like, you know, they're both emotionally difficult and uh, emotionally challenging films that uh, and there's a vulnerability on display with both of them uh, that are that reach almost embarrassing levels at, at, at points that I can't wait to talk about yeah yeah well uh, yeah I think that's as good as any intros we're gonna get so let's jump right into it here let's kick things off let's start with uh, James Bridges's Mike's, Mike's Murder means. there was so much Everything I found out just made it more exciting. Mike's guilt. That could have helped him. I knew that Mike was living on the edge. Mike, are you all right? Yeah, where are you? I tried to warn him. They're out there. They're out there. I can't get him out of my mind. Mike's murder. No one is innocent. All right, we are talking Mike's Murder, the 1984 uh, neo-noir mystery film written and directed by James Bridges. Because of last week's episode where we were talking about Urban Cowboy, this will be our second time talking about James Bridges, the Arkansas filmmaker who kind of began his career as an actor in the 1950s, uh, eventually made his way into television writing, which interested him a little bit more. And he did a bunch of episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents for anyone who's ever caught up with that. And uh, he eventually made his debut in the 70s, a little film called The Baby Maker, which started him on his trajectory of sort of tough but sensitive sort of middle class romance dramatics that would make its way into many of his films whether 
depending whatever genre he was doing, whether he was working with pulpier material or crime material or, you know, uh, things like the China syndrome or Colossus, the Forbid project we even talked about, as, as I mentioned, uh, which there was some funny little tweaks to the dialogue he got to fit in there. Um, he also uh, eventually did the original draft for Clint Eastwood's uh, White Hunter Black Heart. Uh, and he also did the film, which I was actually surprised to learn, uh, Perfect uh, with uh, Travolta and uh, James. Lee Curtis, which we brought up last week because I was saying, I feel like I see the clip from that film go viral like once a year of just Travolta and Jamie Lee just thrusting their pelvises at each other and everyone's like, what the fuck is this movie? (laughs) I never knew that that was a James Bridges movie. It was like how everyone didn't know that it was uh, Robert Redford in that one one gif. Everyone thought it was Zach Galifianakis. So that was me with Perfect. I was like, that's a James Bridges movie? Those two in aerobics gear? Um... Which is also a good point of reference for the next film that we'll be talking about as well, because the uh, the eighties and aerobics they 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 had an interesting oh my interesting goodness time with yeah that. actually um, even just mentioning because we were mentioning the uh, episodes we were doing before, but the Chud actually has an aerobics yeah guy that's as well. true too it's, it's everywhere <laughs> it's everywhere and when we were talking about uh, uh, Van Dam although that might have been nineties I can't remember which one we were talking about at the time but yeah it's the aerobics were strong. <laughs> that yeah, that's that, that's very true. But I ended up being very glad that last week we talked about um, his, you know, Bridges's biggest commercial success and his attempt to cash in on the Saturday Night Fever Travolta craze, uh, Urban Cowboy, because uh, it, it, it did kind of prepare us for a little bit of, as Brendan was mentioning, sort of like the 70s transition into the 80s with that film, because it came out in 1980, obviously it was conceived in the 70s. And but it, it has some of that sort of like tough character study elements from the 70s but you could really start to see the lyricism and some of the more sort of poetic elements and uh the uh definitely some of the style changes that were going to part start happening over the course of of the 80s mm-hmm. and he really embedded himself in that film into the sort of honky-tonk like hangout milieu of boozing and dancing and and bull riding as a jumping off point for some very sad observations on gender roles and domestic abuse and sort of a performative masculinity surrounding the blue-collar men who dress up like cowboys in the cathedral sized Houston bar that they shot that um, film in. Um, And uh, but either way, it was just really beautifully made movie, gorgeous, like sweaty, dingy location work. Great, you know, simple camera movement and staging and crossfades with a real musicality to it and definitely some real heartbreak in the way that it depicted. It's uh, kind of flawed characters and Mm -hmm. we were very happy to watch it because it had us for the first time also talking about Deborah Winger who is incredible in the film she's as basically as strong of a force as Travolta is if not more at times and Bridges Mm -hmm. recognized this so much that he this Mike's Murder is actually his follow-up film to Urban Cowboy four years later and he actually did specifically write this film for her which for anyone who maybe hasn't (laughs) seen it it stars Deborah Winger as uh, Betty Parrish, a Los Angeles bank teller with a crush on her uh, tennis instructor, Mike, who she has a little bit of an on and off relationship with uh, and who doesn't totally know, but has some idea that he's into some nefarious things on the side. He he might be a drug dealer. She's not exactly sure the exact extent of that, though, um, and ends up through a series of sort of vague sort of quasi off screen events. Uh, Mike ends up uh, not really a spoiler. Look, read the title. Uh, uh, brutally <laughs> murdered. Um, and uh, Betty sort of looking, on, though, that, which is pretty wild. It, it does have happen later than you would expect for a movie that is called it. And we'll get into the reason yeah. behind you that. Definitely know where it's going to die. First, exactly. Yeah, the first time you see him, you're like, oh, this fucker's 
getting he's he's dying. Yeah. <laughs> who's who's running this podcast, by the way? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Yes. Keep it sleazy, and, right? Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And uh, but Betty looking for closure on this relationship that she kind of had had started forming with Mike um, basically starts taking over the film's position of something of a detective and begins infiltrating the sort of creepy Los Angeles uh, cocaine dealing scene to try and make some sort of sense of of both Mike uh, and his uh, horrific fate. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Brendan, I thought I'd begin by maybe asking you, uh, what was your first experience like watching this film? Like, how, how did you find it? Um, it was recommended to me by a friend, and funnily enough, this is—I actually watched it for the first time at the Royal. It was me and a friend who was working at the Royal. We got to do like just a private screening. I, I had a copy of this that I found online. I actually don't even remember where I found it. And it was just an afternoon. Uh, me and a friend of mine kind of threw it on and we were just completely hypnotized from start to finish. Like I kind of knew what I was getting to. I knew it was kind of this like sunny, dark, sad neo-noir, which obviously is my jam. So it, I, it wasn't a shock that I enjoyed it, but the actual tone that it struck totally bowled me over. Um, and again, I didn't, in the same way, like I didn't expect to be surprised have how good Deborah Winger was in it, but I was surprised that I fell head over heels in love with her within the <laughs> yeah. first, like, five minutes of the movie. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. And she plays, what I like about her performance is, like, we've we've talked about quite a few uh, noirs and neo-noirs uh, before, and a lot of the time it's, like, this very um, uh, sweaty and desperate performance and there is like some desperation in, in her um like wanting to find answers eventually but there's never a point where it feels like she's deluded or anything like that there is like a constant just missing of mike and and a longing for what maybe could have been or what she doesn't quite understand about him and there's more sadness in that than sometimes i feel like some of the like male leads, for instance, that go on a similar trajectory get a little bit scarier. <laughs> and I feel like uh, she just found, you know, unfortunate sadness in all of this. And, um, and, and you know, eventually kind of a, a, a memory, at least, uh, but like uh, something that she tries to spin positively. But I just mm-hmm. I think her performance in this is fantastic and kind of she's kind of understated the way she does it. It's really awesome. Yeah, no, I, I think she's great, and she perfectly serves Bridges's approach, which I, I like the way you're talking about it, Jamie, where it is basically like, it is operating a lot like slower and more mournful mm-hmm. in terms of sort of like the feeling that it's giving you for a film that is about a woman going detective mode around these like very scuzzy, smoggy daylight LA uh, and pulling at threads of a brutally murdered, you know, on and off lover and a drug dealer. And you could very easily see how someone could make a far more exciting and kind of pulpier movie yes. out of this premise. And some, and probably someone has, yeah. um, Even but bridges the violence is very subdued in this. You see a lot of like aftermath and, and, and to be honest, you don't even see a lot of that. You really get like one particular scene, which we'll get to, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. like that's a, that's a lot of where the brutality comes from. It's a lot of just like the thought of them leaving or, um, just them not being there anymore. Yeah, so there's there's this real like sad desperation to it. There's a, a lonely yearning to it. It feels like something of a sort of romance, sort of thriller hybrid, ultimately meant as kind of like a, a, a depiction of of 
of loss, of memorializing someone, of missing someone. And this really kind of made itself more clear to me when I was able to do some reading up on the film. And I read an interview with the producer of the film, which we'll probably talk about quite a bit. But uh, apparently this is like entirely based on a real friend uh, that that Bridges had um, who was murdered by drug dealers in Los Angeles. And reading wow. the interview with the producer named Jack Larson, um, he, he was in, like just I couldn't believe the amount of detail that they got into this that was just literally what happened to many of the people who made this movie where they were like the guy's name was actually Mark and uh, according to the producer he was this very handsome eager and like dedicated sort of dude who wanted to make his way into the film industry and he did so when he met uh uh, Paul Winfield uh, and he met him on the set of a uh, Baltimore shoot that he was doing and he actually and Paul Winfield is actually in the film essentially playing himself uh, because Paul brought him to LA from Baltimore and let him live in his house for a while and near the house was a tennis court uh, which are, were the ones that they shot the film at um, where they basically said that yeah uh, James Bridges and and uh, the producer Jack would like just drive over to Paul's house and they would see Mike teaching very young beautiful women how to play tennis and he even made a comment saying that yeah you know mike was the kind of guy who'd you know put his bandana around his head and everyone said that he was you know he was just like the most <laughs> handsome gallant looking man. man you've ever seen in your entire life and quoting from this interview real quick as we get into it because we'll get into the details of how this fits in but like this will make a lot of sense as we go through it to have this with you up front mm -hmm. but just straight up quoting Jack here. One day, Jim was driving to Paramount Studios and Mark hailed him. It was sunset in Barrington and he asked Jim for a lift down into West Hollywood. Jim did give him a lift and on that drive, Mark mentioned to Jim that he was having some trouble with some guys and that they were looking for him. They were threatening him and he told Jim that he was going to hide out for a while. But he said that he'd been in touch uh, with us to have... Uh, dinner in a few weeks because we often had dinner with Mark. So Jim dropped him off at, at a house in West Hollywood. Mark told Jim that he was going to hide out, but he was also going to paint a house nearby. And the next thing we heard, Mark had been savagely murdered at his apartment in Brentwood. It was all over the papers and on television. It was a horror. Everyone knew Mark. Everyone liked Mark. We were all just completely stunned. And all the newspapers had to say about him was that he was a drug dealer, which he wasn't. He was like, Mark, you know, didn't even have, this is literally a line that appears in the film by the way right. mark didn't even ever have money at one time to buy himself a car like yeah. he was a you know he he maybe <clears throat> sold a little bit to cover some of his rent and jack ended that interview yeah. by just saying that jim was incredibly haunted by this and thus mike's murder was born that's wild like it even has that scene that reminds me of um when sam his kind of older I don't know. It's it's like I guess a friend that kind of he would he would come in and stay at his place every once in a while, and he would like take care of him or whatever. He says a line where he's just like, "They'll remember him as a drug dealer, but he was the the truth is he was just a confused kid that needed to pay his rent. It was something like yeah. that. And so it's just like it's it's just Oof. you know it's it's how now he's going to be defined because of headlines and just this like one thing he went through that was I guess societally viewed very negative but there's no context to it it's just oh another drug dealer's dead and that's how they paint it 
Um, People who never yeah, bothered a, to actually like learn about who he was and how he got into this situation. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and, and that's what of, this entire film is, right? It is a dramatization of like, here is a headline you might read about drug dealer savagely murdered in his apartment. And here is the movie that doesn't give you necessarily the thrills of that. And mm-hmm. instead is like, really look at this guy. <clears throat> look what it feels. Look what look at the presence he was in people's lives and look at the absence of him. Mm-hmm. In, yeah, you know, by the time he actually does leave the movie in the middle of the movie, it's it's a very sad, bleak movie in that way. And the way that um, like uh, Mark is it Key Lone Key Lown? Um, uh, yeah, Key Lown. Okay, Key Lown. Uh, the way Lone. that he plays him too is like is is really nuanced. Honestly, like in the beginning, he's just kind of got that that charm that we've heard of from the um, the guy that it's based on, and and he, you know he's he's kind of uh, he's flirting, he's he's teaching uh, her tennis. They go on the, uh, a date. They have this kind of very faded romantic kind of uh, sex scene together, and then it goes into the to the credits from there. But then, as the paranoia builds, he he starts to get a little bit more like you know sweaty and and kind of unconventional and eccentric a little bit. Um, but he still, when he's with her, has this charm about him and this uh kind of slickness to him the way that he he talks and and it does seem genuine too it's not like you know pickup game or anything like that he does seem to genuinely have something for for betty um and but i i still like that in those scenes when it starts to get into the the drug dealer stuff when he's kind of on the run and he knows it you can tell that that kind of plays even when he's flirting it's not the same kind of flirting you see in the introduction scene where he seems more put together and he's not going through this um this troublesome period right now uh it's it's a great performance on both ends yeah and you're absolutely right about like how he does kind of get like loopier like it becomes almost like performance art like as he's getting more and more paranoid and obviously more drug addled and he kind of like shifts into this it's a very physical performance where he's constantly kind of looking over his shoulder and he's kind of like doing all these things with his hands and is gesticulating wildly um Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you can just feel the the tension and like his paranoia kind of ratchet up and up. Um, and yeah, it's effective because you really do believe that like this guy's in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And later on with, um, uh, Daryl Larson as Pete, his, his partner mm-hmm. where he has, you know, kind of a similar trajectory where he's, he's also on the run, but he is a, a, a ter- like a really bad person to be honest as, as <laughs> yeah. things are revealed. And so you see that same effect that, you know, p- what paranoia does to both of them and what the drugs kind of do to both of them. But but Mike is able to still keep his, you know, at least good character, whereas as Pete, he he goes off the deep end. And there's some scenes that we'll get to talk about with that. But um, I do like that you get to see, like, both sides there, too, between Pete and mm-hmm. Mike's characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even- I, I, oh, go ahead. Uh, even early on, like when that phone call, that first phone call, and it's before Pete kind of reveals himself to be like a real dirtbag. I guess that's the first kind of indication that you're like, oh, this Pete guy sucks, uh, <laughs> is when she, when uh, Mike tries to call Betty and apologize because he mm. kind of lost time. And he's like, I was, I know I was supposed to call you earlier, which is an indication both that he does actually care about her. Like he didn't, she does, obviously doesn't mean nothing to him. Like he realizes yeah. that he messed up and that he didn't call her on time. So he calls her and tries to apologize. And Pete kind of like, he sort of like has fun with that. Like he's like, don't worry, let me talk to her. I'll smooth it over. But he just ends up kind of insulting her and just like making a joke out of the situation and making it worse. And yep. it was zero really good indication like, oh, this is like how you get your kicks. Like you think this is fun. Uh, yeah. yeah, that that really established what their dynamic and like what their how those two guys are different. 
Yeah, I bet he even reacts like what like when she gets uh uh, on the phone back with Mike, she's like, what was that? You can tell yeah. it was just <laughs> complete discomfort. I think that's all she says to him. So yeah, it's, yeah. The great and telling well, scene. Well, because it's a totally different kind of vibe and maybe not even who she imagined Mike to be hanging out with and versus <laughs> yeah, right. the interactions that she's had, right? Because like all of the early stuff, there's a mournful quality um, to it because the film is obviously, it's titled what it's titled. It is sort of fatalistically building in some way to the, the, the sort of expected r- result. But the mm. opening sort of like slow, jazzy, sort of shadowy sex scene that takes place, like it is meant, it is crossfading in this very sort of romantic way and even though they have a kind of strange romance where it's a lot of Mike uh, just like calling her up you know just sporadically just every couple months to be like oh hey Betty yeah like you really I still think about you like you made an impression on me like I didn't just forget about you I'd love to meet up with you there is a certain frankness about the sex in the film that I do really enjoy like that one when he runs into her and asks her for a ride after not seeing her for months and he's like (laughs) the, the, the car ride ends and he's just like you know this was nice. Like, I'd really like to meet up with you again. And like, you know, she really likes him. She's like, yeah, sure. And and then he follows it up with, I'd really like to like get you naked again, which <laughs> makes her laugh. Yeah. And, but it, but it's just, it's, it's very open and it's very, it's very real in a way, like, you know, mm-hmm. in, in that capacity. So to have such like kind of a, sweet dynamic with Mike who she knows is troubled in some way because even on that car ride, like when, when he's like, it's exactly what happened yeah, to James Bridges in real life. He's and he's telling her he's being honest. He's saying like, look, I got in some trouble and I'm looking over my shoulder because I think some guys are following me and I'm you know, I think they're going to come and get me. And there is an interesting thing built into the film where you you don't actually see necessarily, you know, who's after him and you know why they're after him. And we'll get into it because Pete steals a bunch of cocaine, which is like, (laughs) dude, what are you fucking doing? Um, (laughs) That scene is brutal, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, it's so ridiculous. But but it is like, you know, he's being watched by kind of like an unseen force that the camera actually does imply very much is there. And when characters do end up getting taken by the film, which we'll talk about, it's done in this very sudden, very scary kind of way. And I I really like that years. Yeah, and I I, I really yeah. liked the the sort of visual staging of it because there's a great moment, for example, like when he's asking for a ride across town because he's scared and being dropped off at the uh, the house of uh, Philip, the record producer, who he we find out later he's staying with and maybe owes some money to. But also he's saying, I'm you know I'm going to lay some tile. I kind of work with this guy a little bit too, and she drops him off at the end of the street. And uh, the, the the staging of it is that it's actually this really uh, it's held on this long shot of her inside the car watching him walk down the rest of the street and turning the corner. And it's one of those shots that's held for just a little bit too long. And the John Barry <laughs> kind of like body heat esque, like mysterious and mournful score kind of kicks in. And, you, and I went, oh, my God, is that the last time she's going to see him? And it's not the last time that she sees him, but it has that vibe to it. And then I was not surprised when he eventually is taken and he is like presumably it's the scene where he is shoved inside and murdered in his apartment. Uh, it's done in the exact same shot, but it's actually Pete looking in the car, looking at a long shot of him down oh, on yeah. his porch, essentially. That's a good point. Um, and yeah, there's yeah, just totally. something about the, the powerlessness, the distance, the way that characters are watching each other. And there is just this force out there that wants to, kill them so like very much so mike's uh, paranoia and maybe the things that we think are kind of ridiculousness or quirky about him do end up kind of paying off in a very dark and violent way yeah yeah totally i also like um just back 
briefly to their kind of relationship dynamic. They have this, um, it's clear that they're like very, very into each other, of course. Um, but they also have this hesitance about it a lot of the time. Like um, they don't almost want to overly admit how much they have feelings for each other. They, they want to keep it playful but sometimes they just can't like in that tennis scene where she sees him with a another woman and vice versa like there's obvious jealousy but they don't quite bring it up too much emotionally but you can just tell on their faces and how they're kind of questioning each other they're just like oh okay so this is what's happening um and I he doesn't like need to that. be jealous. That boyfriend that she has is hilarious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, the sushi restaurant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love when she calls him on and she's like, you're so full of shit. And he's like, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's uh, his, uh, the ephemeral is eternal. You know, when you really think about it, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. So, so yeah, she has, she's dating some like radical film student or something yeah. like that. Definitely sounded like, like one exactly of those like, like illusions of grandeur. He's going to, he's going to yeah. change the world through art. Yeah. 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 He's in his third year and obsessed with the theory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but there's there's definitely some like again there I I do like the sort of structure of this where I I want to say it's what like the opening half hour or forty minutes or so are roughly it, it seems like it takes place I wasn't sure even how long it's like either a full year or maybe even longer than that because it's constantly like oh I haven't heard from you in six months or I haven't heard from you in four months and mm -hmm. and we kind of float between these these various scenes of them event running into each other and I do like the way that it's been edited in this way uh, which we'll have to get into because. The, I guess sort there. of famously for anyone who knows that there is there is sort of uh, the, the, an alternate cut to this or there was an original cut to this that is that is different and there's sort of there's it's a lot of speculation um, mm -hmm. uh, about it but like sort of loosely a lot of people are of the mind that um, and and I think James Bridges has sort of or, or his producer has sort of confirmed it that there was an original cut of the film that had a very radical structure to it um, and, and in mind when they were shooting the film, which was that it would sort of loosely play in chronological or reverse uh, reverse chron chronology in, in terms of the order. So think something, I guess, like Nolan did with Memento um, and okay. that irreversible. Or irreversible as well works, yeah. So, so, and and there there are would elements of was would it literally be like like back to front, or would it have been more? That's just said. No one knows like exactly for sure where where he would have cut between, but I I, I do mm. see sort of loosely that you know there is a very fatalistic version of this where you could see it starting with kind of like the corpses and the shocks in its latter half and then slowly mm -hmm. making its way to the sort of tender, dreamier, sort of overlapping memory quality because the opening stuff actually did kind of play strangely to me when I was just getting into the film because it does, has so many breaks. It has this kind of dreamlike, it's just hopping from moment to impressions to, you know, all of these experiences that she had with this guy. And it, it, it totally makes sense in terms of, you know, they did put it back into chronological order and you can follow the plot and everything. It's just, there, I could see a version where like these scenes and her as memories of him after the fact they it's, it's interesting putting these now putting these kind of up to the front but there is uh, like kind of like worth noting that like uh, some people are of the mind that you know Warner Brothers like took this film from him and kind of like cut it 
uh, to their own liking. Uh, but from what I understand, that's not true. And that James Bridges was involved with this cut that we see. And he kind of stands by this cut of the film. Um, yeah. oh, okay. Uh, very, I, I can speak to this a, a little bit. Um, okay. Well, for, for one, uh, Jack Larson actually, as well as his producer, that that was actually his romantic partner for many years uh, up until, up oh. until his death. Um, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he was the one with the actual uncut print, um, after gotcha. James Bridges died, um, he unfortunately has died as well. Um, so now nobody really knows where the original cut is. But you're absolutely right that like it was originally intended to be sort of like Memento is going to go in reverse, open with the murder, and then kind of end as a love story. Uh, beyond that, I don't really know exactly what it would have looked like or exactly what happened. But what happened is there was a disastrous test screening where they yes. invited people <laughs> in to watch it. It was... Well, it was kind of two things. It was one, the reverse chronological order, and two, it was the actual murder scene was, from what I understand, just brutal. Like, it was incredibly violent. It was very graphic. You saw it in great graphic detail, him actually get bludgeoned to death. It was a long scene that, like, you know, probably would have turned into a fight with the MPAA over getting an R rating. Oh, wow. uh, and I think people were just completely turned off by it. Uh, they... Didn't really it know what was going to be that kind of movie going in. Jarring, just in the context of the rest of this film, because it does feel kind of old back and, mm -hmm. and more focused on just like. The, I imagine yeah. that was the in, the intent, though. Is the oh, thing. of course, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It would work just for us, that's have. for sure. I'm, oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. and I, I'm dying to see that cut. But yeah, for what I understand, and, and then there was a lot of rumors that like, oh, like the studio took it away from James Bridges and they cut it without his consent. Uh, but apparently, exactly like you said, Josh, that uh, I think part of it was, I think, that. It was like the studios were like, we've got to make some changes, we've got to make this more traditional. But I think that ultimately James Bridges kind of agreed with that he was like yeah i get it it's a business you, this well because well, he was at the, he was literally at the test screening from oh yeah what Jack was saying in in the interview and he was like horrified because yeah. he he wanted some of the upsetting reactions but i think he got some reactions in some places he didn't yeah. um want want to get them and also mm. it's worth noting that warner brothers also kind of set this up to fail a little bit just because they did market the test screening we talked about this once when we talked about right. I think it was wes craven's deadly friend when they they set up a test screening for that and they were like from the director of Nightmare on Elm Street comes this kooky little sci-fi movie about a, you know some some friends who have a robot, and then that movie got retroactively turned into a slasher film because of the because of the test screening. So the same thing happened here. They said, "Come check out the new film by Deborah Winger and Urban Cowboy director James Bridges," and all of a sudden they just got this like a harrowing feel bad movie about his <laughs> yeah. friend dying and how he feels about it, and and a lot of scenes are just people. People looking incredibly sad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, and, and and not only do you have the scene where Mike is brutally murdered, which really upset them, but there was a lot of explicit sex elements, including like seeing the phone sex scene um, from Mike's perspective mm. and actually seeing that completely on screen. Also, some fantasy scenes apparently of her imagining, um, you know, sort of sex scenes with Mike that she didn't get to have, and also some really just explicit dialogue throughout the uh, in, in, in entire film and mm -hmm. one. One of them is still mostly left in, but there is a line cut from it, which we'll get to, which is the uh, the scene for, with uh, Philip, which is one of my, personally uh, my favorite scenes that are, is in the film. And then mm. an another thing that was, uh, I guess, a big one that was cut was they did record an entire soundtrack with uh, Joe Jackson. So it's supposed <laughs> to be front too. to back Joe Jackson music. 
Uh, and I think that was the one. And I don't know. <laughs> I do wonder involved. about that. I got to be honest. Uh, I don't well, know, I know if that's exactly the vibe I have watching it. I know, it. <laughs> right? The John Barry score is so good. And it really works in its favor. And it just perfectly captures that melancholy tone. Yeah. The Joe Jackson soundtrack, it's, you know, you know what Joe Jackson sounds like. It's a lot of like, and like, it's, <laughs> I just don't know how it would fit. Um and I don't know if that was part of the test screening. They didn't like it or if it was just James Bridges being like, mm, on second thought, maybe I should go a different direction. But um, <laughs> and again, I'm, I'm sure it was partially the studio. Like, I'm sure there was fights with the studio that like we don't have we didn't have access to or visibility into. But ultimately, I think that was also James Bridges uh, decision to be like, all right, we're going to go with a more kind of traditional something a little bit soft and orchestral. Uh, and what's funny yeah. is that they still released that Joe Jackson soundtrack, even though those songs weren't really used in the movie. Uh, and I think the soundtrack, I mean, it's, I think it sold way more copies than like the actual, it made more money than the movie did. That's for sure. Um, I know. Wow. I, I, I just logged this film uh, today when I was reviewing it and I already had a friend check out a local Toronto record store and they found the Mike's murder soundtrack. Yeah. They're floating the around. Store. I've definitely seen a couple <laughs> yeah, of them. So I've, now I've I'm going to go copy. down there tomorrow and I'm going to go get it just to hear what that sounds like. Cause yeah, I don't think a lot of that music is actually in the film. It is, but only like, it, it's only in a diegetics So, Oh, so it's like music like that they're listening like, to, like yeah, on the radio and stuff? Uh, or? car radio, it'll be in the background of a gotcha. restaurant. But basically, anytime you're at Paul Winfield's house, it's kind of softly playing, like, from his stereo. Oh, do you know what? I kind of like that music. Yeah, I, cool. Okay, I'll it go works. check it out. <laughs> okay, and and yeah, you know what? I should good. say, I didn't mean to shit on the soundtrack, because it is a good soundtrack. It's just, I, again, like, the tone, if it was actually, like, blasting through the entire movie, I just feel like it would have had a different tone. Maybe not a bad thing, but it's definitely not the tone that I'm, that, you know, I fell in love with. Yeah. And there's also that um, it, the, the kind of the way that they use the that do re mi scale um, in mm. uh, the intro, middle, and ending with uh, with Betty. The piano. It kind of yeah, I, I feel and it and I'm pretty sure it's kind of swoops and sweeps into a viol like string and piano piece that that it eventually turns into. So um, yeah. and I think that's probably John Barry. I would assume based on the uh, the, the the style. So and I and I really do like that that connective tissue there. I thought I think that that's great. So yeah, I don't know if Joe Jackson would have given the same feel uh, <laughs> on yeah, that. No, but hiring John Barry right after Body Heat made a lot of sense to me because we we've we've talked about that on 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 the show and very much if you're looking for that kind of classy noirish sound but yeah. updated for for the '80s, like you know this is this is the guy to go to. Clearly, I'm uh, sure that, that exact Cowboys conversation well, happened while they're in meetings <laughs> about that. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and and then you you know you want to shift it into a, like you want to be able to market it as like a girl goes undercover into the drug scene in Los Angeles, <laughs> you know, like you know that's that's a sound that you might be able to sell a little bit better. So yeah. it, it, it does make yeah. um, sense to me. But what is interesting to me is that Bridges managed to keep so much of what clearly was the feeling of the film intact despite last minute score changes last minute editing changes like it's so clearly baked into the performances it's so clearly baked into the you know the the framing and the way that he chose he chose to shoot everything and it, it is there in in the new cut of um the film and and it, it just does result in something that feels strange because you feel like you're being sold one kind of movie you feel like the plot is unraveling in a kind of movie that you've seen before mm -hmm. but it does it it does do it in this slower way that I, ha I I checked out some reviews and I could see that some people were a little dissatisfied or a little bit like not a whole sure. lot seems to happen or there's not like a mm -hmm. big twist to the noir there's not and it's not you kind of know it's blunt in every that sense 
Well, because it was supposed to kind of unfold backwards, he kind of gives you all the information up front. You kind of yeah. know everything that you're going to need to know. And, he, and then it just and, becomes and, doom. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah and, and that to me is so good, though, like that yeah, elliptical totally. feeling of just like, oh, my God, this is going to go horribly wrong. And even if you don't necessarily see it, you feel that there's something uh, wrong there, even in some of the yeah. stuff, like even before it's gone wrong, even before you're still kind of in some of the ro- more romantic scenes, like when he starts meeting back up with with Deborah and he calls her a bunch of months later and he's just like, you know, we are going, you know, they have that phone sex scene that they have where they kind of mm-hmm. recreate their night together, but from a distance because she can't go over because it's a work night. And um, then he sets up like kind of like a, a, a date with her because he's moved back nearby. And I love that conversation they have where he, he's like, same number. She's like, same number. And he's like, good. <laughs> I'm I'm, yeah. I'm gonna call you, and Same she's like, from yeah, like okay. eleven months ago, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm I'm sure. And he's like, no, this time I mean, I promise. Like, I'm I'm really gonna call you, and I'll come. And she's just like, the last time you called, you came. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that. Yeah, that was her really like exhibiting her her kind of naughty side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, like like Deborah Winger really gives Betty this like a real sense of personality to her, and we really yeah. do spend a lot of time with her. I love that moment when she is kind of excited that he's going to call and maybe set up a date Mm -hmm. and she just waits by the phone all night and you know and she's you know she's whether she's arriving home in her little tennis outfit or she's you know drawing herself a bath or whatever she's doing she's you know wasting time looking at the phone you can see her eyes glancing you can see the shots of the phone and And meanwhile, we get an idea of what Mike is up to, where he is with Pete stealing the cocaine from one of their contacts that they are working for, which is just a bozo move up front. I know. If you're in the film, if you're in the drug game. how well orchestrated that scene is for these two absolute morons doing something like, yes, (laughs) how do you think this is going to work? Like, it's okay. We'll just take some cocaine out of the big brick of cocaine. (laughs) How could they possibly notice? Even though we like they left like a hole in the bag, basically. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, well, and it's so funny because Bridges is so we talked about this on Urban Cowboy last week, but like he's so good at communicating wordless things like this that we, you know, it's all through implication. These guys are just looking at each other and you could see Pete, you know, kind of having the idea. He's like, I could just take some cocaine from that bag while they're not watching. Right. And then you could see Mike look over at him. He's like, nah, nah, man, nah, please don't do it. But the thing is about Mike, like he he kind of gives in to Pete a lot. Like Mike is uh, He, he is kind of like a lovable character in the sense of when he's interacting with Betty and stuff, but he is also a bit of a dipshit throughout this movie, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and not in a way that I think it diminishes the character by any means. I think it makes him very nuanced. But um, like this is definitely a moment in which he is pressured into it and just kind of gives in, even though he knows it's entirely stupid. And yeah probably going to doom them yeah. like i mean it's just well, th- even, even the like opening stuff of them selling one. drugs at what big tommy's chili burgers or whatever and they're oh, clearly so on someone else's big turf tommy's. yeah <laughs> i, I want to talk more about that we can uh, we can spin back around though <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but it's uh, a, yeah it's, a, it's just a telling scene i think between their relationship because pete is probably the one that has been getting him into trouble but at a certain point mike like just stop listening to Pete. Pete is clearly a <laughs> dumber than you are. So just, you know, yeah, it's almost like they're roles. like, it's almost like they're children and they're like, like they're both in like, you know, elementary school together. And it's like, you know, they're best friends, but like Pete's kind of the bully and he kind of, and Mike kind of looks up to him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It yeah. does feel like there's that an interesting dynamic bit. where they, they really because do just seem when, like kids. Even when he, like we were talking about the scene where he's on the phone with, um, 
uh, with Betty and and Pete gets on the phone, I'm just like, why would you even give him the phone? Like, it, it, Mike just seems kind of very much like a pushover for Pete. And I'm not sure if it's like a, it's just they've been through, you know, so much together over the years. And there's kind of this just trust and communication that they have, even though he's been getting him into trouble. But there are a, quite a few scenes where it seems like Pete is... Uh, is doing things and Mike is just kind of allowing it to happen, um, even though he disagrees. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it literally just gets him killed, right? So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the big one, yeah. Yeah, main takeaway here, Pete sucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, that like that that moment when like you, have, you know that they've done something stupid and it's cross-cutting between her waiting for the phone because he, he was like, I'm going to call at 6, and he's like, oh, I'm caught up doing a work thing, I'll call you at 11. She continues to wait. She's, you know, she's drinking her midnight coffee, she's playing her Etatune piano, she starts smoking again, which is, you know, immediately you're like, this guy's not good for you if you're smoking <laughs> right. again. But next thing we know, the next morning, she's just like, I can't believe i waited all night for a stupid guy like i'm a moron she's talking with uh with her i can't remember if it's her neighbor or just her friend uh who's played by the aunt actually from urban cowboy that's right yeah it's the only other movie that i've seen her in it is definitely a friend because she drops her off at home like in her car so right right. but she's obviously much older i don't know exactly what the damn i got that is it patty it's Patty, yeah. Patty, yeah and Patty. you don't really know how they became friends because, you know, again, Patty's like obviously quite a bit older than her. Uh, mm. How that and She doesn't work at the bank. Like she's like a teacher or something. Or something yeah. I think she's a, I think Betty's a bank teller. Um, yeah, yeah, she is. And she, she is kind of presented as having like a very normal and stable life in a, you know, a slightly boring way, but in a positive way. Like she's, <laughs> especially when you have the contrast of Mike and Pete uh, every time they switch back to that. Um but yeah, I, th- I thought that that's maybe where Patty came from, but I don't know if they specify. Yeah, well, and, and then this obviously disrupts that life, right? All of a sudden, like yeah. in the next morning, she's getting a call saying from it's from Pete, right? Saying that um, Mike is Mike is dead. Mm-hmm. Or no, sorry, it's, it's from um, it's from the Sam. photographer. Yeah, the photographer. Sam, that's Sam. right. Yeah, so Sam is the one who calls because he takes photos uh, nearby where they play tennis and actually did take some mm-hmm. photos of them and kind of likes them. Um, and he's the one who calls and says, "I really like this Mike kid," and uh, you know he he's been murdered. And it's it's a very shocking jolt for obviously um, uh, Betty, who is just a bank teller, and then all of a sudden you know she's in, she's involved. She feels like she's involved in this situation. She knows somebody's been murdered. Like that's a that's a big shock. And she was close yeah. to, intimately close with someone who just got murdered. Uh, and I mean, going back to, I mean, obviously we're just going to keep on dipping into Dipper Winger's performance, but I mean, that's such a great oh, scene yeah. for her because I think in, like, I think traditionally in, in another role, if you had a different actor, like that would have been a big showy kind of grandiose moment where she would have, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. threw the phone across the room and like collapsed onto her bed or there would have been something like that. And in the same way that like, you know, when, like you mentioned before, when uh, Mike doesn't call her and then she's, you know, obviously pissed off, but she doesn't, you know, yell, she doesn't yell at him, she doesn't call him a son of a bitch, she doesn't like, you know, go off on like yeah. the normal kind of actorly instincts. It's all very internalized and it comes out in just these very kind of muted ways. Uh, until there is one moment, I think, later on that she does kind of like collapse and like falls into her bed and cries. But it's never from something big happening. It's from sheer exhaustion from like doing all these things. Yeah. And it's it's such a beautifully subtle and understated performance. Uh, totally. Yeah. 
And every time I watch it, it, there was this time where I, before I screened it for Neon Dreams, that uh, I had the, the Warner Archives DVD. And I don't even know what it was. It definitely wasn't a comfort film because it's not a very <laughs> comfortable film to watch. <laughs> but I was just kind of, I had this obsession with it and I would just kind of put it on like before I went to bed uh, constantly and usually not get through the whole thing, but just kind of like throw it on. And I guess it was in a weird way a comfort film, but it was mostly that just like watching her performance and seeing the things that she does and all those like subtle nuances. Uh, I just found it just totally delectable every time I watched it. Yeah. And I find bridges and, and winger work really well together. Like, cause bridges sets up all of these, these, these places and these things that they did, like the, the photographs from Sam, the tennis court. And then later on when it, you know, it's about halfway through when he actually, when Mike actually gets murdered and now it's kind of the, like missing him and searching for the answers. You just mm-hmm. see her, for instance, when she goes to Sam and she looks over the, the, the balcony and she can see the tennis courts and you just get a scene of Deborah just crying and that's it. You, there's no real dialogue in that sense, at least in that moment. Yeah. Cause the tennis um, courts aren't the same with Mike teaching all the young, beautiful women how to, you know, get their serve going. You know, yeah, it's just, exactly. It's, it's true. Ex- exactly. <laughs> or she'll, you know, she'll uh, you'll she just something subtle like she just got uh, done questioning somebody or going to a new location looking for for answers and then she'll just look at a, a photo of Mike and, and kind of break down and think about him. And they take the time for her to just to just think about Mike. Um, and yeah. I think that's incredibly important, uh, uh, especially once it leads to the the final scene and everything, which we'll get to, of course. But um, yeah, it's just, it's very well thought out in the sense that it is obviously predictable, but I think that's kind of the point and you're really supposed to start to just understand what, what Betty's going through. Yeah, yeah I, the, uh, I love that detail that you brought up of how much information is sort of expressed and figured out through photography or, or video um, mm-hmm. in this, like the photos of her and Sam or her and Mike that were taken by Sam. But the Polaroids also uh, mm-hmm. that are sitting in the um, like she, she finds out in one of the scenes that Mike really liked Polaroids because he was impulsive and he couldn't wait for them to get developed, which is a detail, <laughs> character detail I like. Yeah. And then later she actually when we'll talk about it, when she goes to the crime scene and finds his, you know, his very bloody uh, apartment the Polaroids are in the blood. And that's just like a shot where it's like, oh man, like it's such a connection to him and who he was as a person that he loved these photos. And, but even like, you know, Randy uh, shows her uh, video footage at one point of Mike and Philip fighting in his house, which is like a very important moment where she gets a view of what Mike was like when she wasn't around Mike or when he wasn't like, because again, he was who he was, but he was putting on a little bit of a show because he really liked Betty and, you know, and seeing who he was just with his friends and who he was at Philip's house is like a very different experience. And this part actually reminded me a, a lot of, uh, Twin Peaks. It oh, reminded me so oh, sure. much yeah. of. I thought you were like, going to say something else. No, it just reminded me so much of what they try to do in, the, especially the vi- like even just like the very first episode where they they really do make like Mike a Laura Palmer kind of figure in people's lives, where it's like there's this mm-hmm. mysterious element to them. There's this double criminal life element that we you know slowly will start to unravel and come to understand, and but we don't really know the depth of it until he's gone, and all you have is the confusion and some leftover photos and videos that you're kind of watching, and the this compulsion that she feels to really find him and 
find out what happened to him and know him in a way that she didn't know him. She didn't have the time to know him uh, yeah, when he was yeah. actually alive. And that that's feeling does pervade so much of the second half of the film when she it, it's what that's why when you get scenes of her like tailing characters in this, like doing the vertigo driving stalker POV shots of her in her car, which they do just straight up steal. Yeah. It, but it's it's very much driven by this emotional compulsion aspect to it that I think find like very, very uh, effective. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely. What, what was the thing you thought I was going to say? What does it remind <laughs> you of? <laughs> that well, that scene in particular, and, and you're absolutely right that like it does have a Twin Peaks feeling to it. Like you definitely mm-hmm. like to her, he's just this like tennis instructor that kind of got high sometime. It was like this this hunky tennis instructor that got high sometimes, but then l- l- seeing like what he actually was in his private life is uh, is yeah shocking. But to me, that particular scene when they're looking at the videotape, Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. The, the fight, with, oh, the fight yeah, with Jack Horner, yeah. how he's like, you know, I know what state I'm in. Especially the like, Randy character. He's practically a Boogie Nights character. I know, and he's got the headband <laughs> on, too, and he's obviously, like, coked out of his mind. And you can almost, you're waiting for Paul, Paul Winfield to be like, I'm not going to shoot you in this state. Uh, <laughs> 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 but it really does, like, feel that. And I've never actually heard Paul Thomason talk about this movie or anything, but I did feel like there was, I don't know, maybe it's just because I've seen Boogie Nights so many times, but I immediately kind of thought of Boogie Nights and the way that was staged felt very similar. Uh, and especially because mm-hmm. it looks the way that the Dirk Diggler story <laughs> looked when it was like shot on video. Anyway, that that's kind yeah. of what it reminded me of. That's what I thought you were going with. Yeah, that. He's, he's not a porno. He's just uh, he's a, a Chippendales audition exactly, video. I yeah. think is what they say it is. <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah, it's also it feels like something you feel like Mark Wahlberg would do yeah. too. So and then there's another <laughs> guy who, by the way, looks just like John Travolta in kind of like a weird way. He's like a beefed up John Travolta. Uh, oh yeah! Oh yeah! The the, the guy it's, who's actually it's so funny because I clocked him too, but uh, it, he's um Christine. he's also the bu- yeah, Christine, he's the bully with the switchblade. Yeah, yeah that's right. I, I, oh, immediately, yeah. I was like, that's yeah, who that guy is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I knew he looked familiar. I didn't look it up. That's awesome. <laughs> um, it's also funny that she gets information based on him just being like coked out of his mind and just like, hey, te- check out my Chippendales audition tape. <laughs> Let's go. It's funny. I feel like that's the most exposition is in that one scene. It's just him kind of like, like you know, stream of consciousness, <laughs> like spurting out a bunch yeah. of like coke out, coked out nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this is actually probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie because this is the scene we're talking about where she drives up to the mansion uh, to talk to the owner of the mansion who uh, Mike was living with for a while the record producer Philip obviously as we mentioned played by Paul Winfield from Terminator from Cliffhanger um, and also uh, as I already mentioned uh, playing himself like actually he was the guy who took uh this mark in he was the guy who brought him to LA he did kind of have a little bit of a relationship with him and uh, these uh, I, I really like when she drives up to his house to be like, I need to have some answers on what his life was like. And she just walks into the house and it's just filled with like beautiful young people in their underwear listening to Joe Jackson or whatever or whatever pop songs they're also listening to <laughs> doing cocaine. Yeah, it is Joe Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and she's, you know, she's talking to this Randy guy, uh, who's, you know, going off about, you know, they got to legalize everything, man, take drugs, prostitutions out of the hands of the criminals. The moral majority is being funded by the mafia. And, you know, he's actually making some points, but it's just, it's very funny that this is the, it's not the conversation she's there to have. And it's not until she actually talks to Philip, um, and Winfield just like, kills this scene there's so much sadness in how he talks to her and the empathy for her confusion and her heartache which he like completely shares and you can just so tell that bridges is like how we feel about mark this is how you're going to talk about mike uh in this scene and that that couple lines he gets where he's just like you know he's he sees 
that she wants answers. She sees that she, you know, he, he, she wants to find out what happened to Mike and he's just like, do you really want to know like what they did to him yeah, and how like, he died uh, and if he suffered and like it, like you don't want to know that he's, yeah. and he says, believe me, you, you don't, don't wanna know. want to know that. Yeah. Like this yeah, was an like, enforcement killing. He knows so little. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, because because he even says like, "Were you in love with him?" Like, so was I. And this is it's such a great detail that I don't think another filmmaker would include. Is that you know he was having a legitimate you know romantic and sexual relationship with Mike, um, mm-hmm. and it's actually a kind of for Betty, it's a little confusing in that moment that that this is how it's being revealed to her. Um, and it kind of she says she doesn't. I think she even says like, "I don't want to hear anymore. Like, stop talking about how you know you were having sex with him or whatever you're talking about. I don't want to hear anymore." Yeah. But you know, it's done in this really sad way by Paul where he's basically like, you know, I never asked Michael what he did with the money that he borrowed from me. I never asked him when he paid it back to me. I am happy that I know so little because I didn't want to be involved and you don't want to get involved. In this instance, like ignorance truly is bliss and he's just, he's tearing up while he's saying it and you can tell that this guy is just like, I, you know, I don't, this happened to someone I know and I hate the knowledge of knowing it. You know, I would just... Yeah. And it's yeah, it's it's it's, it's really really sort of emotionally brutal moment. And one of the the things that was cut here that I was referring to earlier actually is a very sexually explicit moment where he goes deeper into his relationship with Michael and talks about like, you know, the first time that he slipped it up his ass or something uh, like that. Oh and, wow! <laughs> yeah, and so th- this was actually one of the things that and that James Bridges thought went a little too far, and he took it from the scene as well. And and may, he might have been right on that front, just because I, I do like how frank it it's, is about the fact that they were in a gay relationship with one another like that yeah. seems actually kind of progressive for 1984 but yeah th- to use it as a shock in the middle of like such an emotional scene might have misstepped yeah mm-hmm. it just doesn't even make any sense like if, if he is being empathetic to her like why would he bring something like that up like how yeah how, it just doesn't really make sense to the character uh yeah it's yeah. funny the more i learn about the stuff that got cut out the more i'm like i kind of like this version <laughs> yeah yeah speaking of that um because because this one of the scenes actually very close to this afterwards uh besides maybe i think like pete starts to do they start to cut to pete where he's getting like paranoid and trying to look for a way out but um after oh, yeah. all the scenes of him continues. and the the noose tightening around him while he's going person to person like hideout oh, yeah. to hideout friend to friend like doing someone coke, let me in coke line yeah he's just oh, he's losing his mind but um uh with her she this is after that scene she gets like just obviously sadder and more confused but like still carries on because she really does want to learn more about mike and what happened and this is where she stumbles upon the the uh the the bloody uh crime scene and it's so like blunt and cold the way that he that bridges presents it here because she just walks in and there's cops like three agents or whatever kind of looking over things and they're just they're kind of smiling and just like laughing about their day like it's just a it's job their day job yeah they're so just like so cracking jokes to each other she's looking at it like and this is by the way it looks it's a bloodbath like blood is everywhere you there's see like handprints from pools struggling of blood. yeah yeah it's it's like there's a lot of of just horrifying detail. And like Josh was saying earlier, there's like the Polaroids of him and it's just, you know, so, so now she has these, these nice memories that she would look at with these Polaroids, but now you see his blood literally splashed onto it. So it's just, it's devastating. Um, and later on, there's also a very, uh, cold delivery with, with, with violence. Like when you see things, it's almost always aftermath and it's very, uh, blunt the way that Bridges just presents it. It's, it's just kind of like with this scene, it's a bloodbath. And then with, 
with later on, it's a, a body in a landfill kind of thing. So, um, but it's just so blatant the way that he presents it and cold and, and it's very sad to watch Betty really see the physical, uh, like what, what happened to Mike? It's, it's, yeah, I, re- it, I remember reading, uh, I think it was in the interview with Jack. He was talking about that. They said that they had, they watched so many crime movies and they were kind of like, you know, we had a friend actually die and, you know, we got the reports about it and it's just like the movies just weren't accurate to what it was like to read something like that. And they said that when yeah. they wanted to do it, they were like, one of the things they get wrong is how much blood is mm. in a crime scene. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was something they said that was like really important for them to, you know, really have Deborah go into this room, really witness this horror in the middle of trying to like form a connection with a Mike who's missing and then seeing this symbol of obviously his demise in just uh, right in front of her face like that. Yeah. And it also, it, it, it begs the question, like what did he do to deserve this? Like you see the thing and it's like, you know, there's like a, a gang killing or whatever. There's, there's, there's quicker ways to do it than what it looked like that scene was that looked like, and I think they even say it <laughs> earlier on. Sam says something like they were, or no, maybe it wasn't Sam. Maybe it's Philip. Uh, when they're, he's like, they're trying to make a statement. And yeah, when Phillip she gets says there, that, yeah. it's, it is a statement that is for sure. It's mm-hmm. it's no clean hitman job. This thing is is messy as all hell and 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 would be terrifying, I'm sure. And I think what it it, it also adds to to Betty is just kind of it, it would probably just drill into her imagination. Like you don't get any clear thing of what happened there. It just looks like a bloodbath. So she could only imagine the worst possible things, and it, it kind of adds to uh, the terrifying nature of it a little bit. Yeah, well, because it's the same for us. Like, we're we're Betty, right? Like, we only yeah, get to see what totally. Betty sees. And it's funny. I'm actually just realizing now while we're talking about it that, you know, all this talk about, like, seeing the the original cut that was a lot more brutal. Like, of course, I've, I've been mm-hmm. spending so much time trying to seek that out and seeing if I can. And it's going to be the exact same thing as Betty, right? Like, I'm going to finally, if I do finally see it, I'll see this, like, really violent scene and be like, I wish I didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, just like Paul Winfield says, like, you know, you want to know what happened. You don't. Believe me, you don't. And like, yeah, I probably don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, 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 is a, there is a structuring absence to the way that the film that does feel baked into the film, which is it, it's interesting to find out the production history that so much was cut. And I do wonder if Bridges got to the point where he was like, I could cut this in an interesting way. I could remove these mm-hmm. things and I could make that kind of the point of removing them. Um, yep. And uh, I don't know if that's actually how it played out. We probably will never know. But the fact is, is it is effective regardless of uh, if it if it was a compromise or not. Yeah. yeah, I will say one thing about uh, booking. That this is a little bit off subject, but um, when I booked the film for uh, for my Neon Dream screening, um, yeah, because you played this on thirty five millimeter, yes, right? Which is insane. Did, I'm so is, depressed that I wasn't <laughs> at that. <laughs> so it's a whole story, and I will I will let you know about it. Some of it you might have to cut. I don't know. We'll we'll talk about it later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so basically, I really wanted this film. And I knew that like you can't. I can't just throw in this 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 DVD just isn't really theatrical. Uh, it's it's not. It, it wouldn't feel right to play this film on a DVD, uh, and there's no other way that you can see it. So I really wanted that print. I knew it was Warner Brothers. We reached out to Warner Brothers. They said they didn't have a print. Uh, even though I'm like, I know that Liars. it's played at the theaters. You're lying to me. I know you're <laughs> lying. <laughs> uh, and they just maintained, they're like, yeah, sorry, we don't have it. Um, so I ended up through a friend. I actually ended up getting in touch with Deborah Winger. I know. And I asked her and she said, let me see what I can do. And she basically, not basically, she literally strong armed uh, Warner Brothers into copying the print. So it was one email email from Deborah Winger that she CC'd me in. And they got back like 
like five minutes later and they were like, yep, absolutely. Where can we send it, Ms. Winger? And, I was like, and I'm like, I'm still here. I'm in the email. You just told me you didn't have a friend. Uh, that's, that's how it goes. But here's one thing that's really interesting. And I think about this all the time. They said, what version do you want? Ooh. And I said, oh, the theatrical. And then after I was like, wait, did that mean, oh, my God, do they are they sitting on the original cut? Uh, and then I kept on thinking I was obsessed with it. And then I after I after I did the screening, I actually emailed the contact that was emailing me back at uh, Warner Brothers, the, the very same person who said they didn't have a print at all. And I said, I got to ask you, you did mention you, you asked me what version I wanted. Can you tell me what you have? And she got back to me again right away. And she's like, oh, yeah, that was just a just just a mistake. We only have the one version. And I'm like, OK. <laughs> because I already know that you're lying. Like a secret, so, like safe I already somewhere. know that you lied right, once, so there's no doubt that you lied twice. Uh, so maybe the slip up wasn't that you said something wrong; is that you shouldn't have said it in the first place. So I think that there is a part. There is a uh, an interview with uh, uh, with Jack Larson, um, and he did say that at one point before before he died that he was sitting on a print of the original cut. Uh, I don't know where that print is now. Um, neither of them had children, so I don't really know where that would go to. Uh, Deborah right. doesn't seem to either. So I feel like it does exist. I just don't know where. So hopefully, oh, man, that'll be that'll be one of those white whale moments. I know. That we'll, just, I know. we'll be wishing for it. It'll come up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Decades from now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but if uh, if if we are moving into kind of near near the uh, the end of the film here, I think one of the 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 last things we have to talk about is um, Pete and uh, uh, Betty having oh, yeah. their big confrontation, which for a lot of people I think is kind of considered the maybe like one big melodramatic moment um, mm -hmm. of the film that otherwise kind of eschews melodrama, as I think. Brendan kind of articulated um, earlier. I still think that this scene is quite effective just because how good the performances are, like how good Deborah Winger is at kind of having some empathy for this desperate guy that she knows is in a similar terrible position that Mike was in. And there is something horrifying, I think, on her face to probably realizing that this is a similar, like this is what Mike went through. Yeah. That this is this level of fear and and, you know, just freaking out and screaming and crying is probably the kind of suffering that Mike went through when these same people were hunting him. And I think that there is a sort of strange empathy there, despite the fact that at this point, Pete is absolutely just a flat out psycho and yeah. like breaking into her home and like doing this really I, I like the uh, blocking of it because it's like this very strange like bear hug maneuver where he's too afraid to let her move a few inches away but he's also trying to be like I'm not gonna hurt you and like I'm not gonna do anything and then she tries to be like how about I go get you a drink and he like grabs her and throw and like throws her around and you know like that kind of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets questionable about what his intentions are at first. You're like, I think he's just desperate at looking for help. But then, especially in that first like half of of the scene when he's interacting with her, once they get into the house, it does seem like, are you? Do you have a, a, other intentions here? Are you got, like? It, it, it did feel um, kind of assaulty at first. Like I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. But uh, it seems like he also has a. There's, he's so desperate at this point that he's just kind of going to Betty because Mike mentioned her and was like kind of in love with her or had love for her. And I find that to be very interesting that he's, he's like 
every other card is off the table. He's he went to I think uh, Sam's he, place. He literally Sam's. did go to everybody. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. yeah to, he, no, he did, he did go to Sam's, Sam's place because the then mail. Sam calls on the phone. <laughs> right, right. That's kind of and like that, a funny moment too, and like a very like intense moment where like he she gets a voicemail and he's like, yeah, just so you know that uh, <laughs> okay, that, that peak guy, he's, he's out he there. He was he's just freaky, talking man. like a maniac. Yeah, like it's obviously not funny because this scene is horrified, but that's just just the the timing of getting that voicemail while this crazy man's in her house yeah, yeah exactly and when, and when he's actually over too the guy's just like uh you should have messed with this people it's it pretty much just like it's game over man you're you're done they're going to get you yeah. and there's there's nothing that you can do about it so yeah. yeah his his last hail mary is essentially just go to betty and see if like <laughs> i don't know if they can talk to them <laughs> they can she can yeah. talk to them or something like it's so i don't even know what his like end plan is but he's so coked up and deluded and and paranoid and scared and he just well it, just it, it, it seems like he also man. wants to be a little absolved by her right because sure, she was mike's sure. she was like mike's only person that he knows who there was like an emotional connection and i i do like that moment when he's trying to explain what happened and why they're in trouble and then he all just starts breaking down because she doesn't even say anything she just looks at him and she mm-hmm. and he just immediately starts thinking what she could be saying and he's just like you think this is all my fault you know, uh, you know, but but right. but Mike knew what happened. He was part of it. He took his share. You know, uh, you know, like, he's and like, he's he's trying to justify it to her, even though she's literally not saying anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and I don't think. I mean, and, there, there's not really the the logic is shaky because I don't think there really is any logic. Like he is just completely outside of his outside of his own head, like on on cocaine. And uh, I don't like. I think he said like he she was literally the last person that he knows that she could possibly that he could possibly go to. Uh, yeah. And uh, and yeah, you're right. He wanted. I think in a weird way he wanted her to be like, don't worry, it's not your fault. Because I feel yeah. like part of it was he was paranoid that, you know, people are after him, which isn't really, is it paranoia when they actually are after him? Uh, yeah. And part of it was just like he feels a tremendous amount of guilt for his, you know, his his buddy getting killed uh, for something that they were in, in on together. Um, yeah, that's the thing about Pete is like he's obviously a like a total idiot and a, like almost pretty much a psychopath by the end of this, but he does seem to genuinely care about Mike and his relationship with him, um, regardless of always putting him into trouble and all of that. It did seem like it was the one thing that he kind of had. Mm-hmm. Um, although there is a lot of cowardice to him, because I did forget uh, this detail, when we do see the kind of shadow figures overcome Mike, um, he mm-hmm. just leaves. I, f- I did forget about that. He's it's like one of the moments um, where he doesn't really even show any uh, concern for Mike. He just is like, well, fuck this. I'm out of here. And yeah. he knows exactly well, I, what's going to happen. I also love seeing both angles of this, because as I was mentioning, we saw the one when Mike gets taken. He's sitting in the car. It's this long shot of him looking over at the porch as the two guys grab Mike and throw mm-hmm. him into his room and presumably brutally murder him from there in, in the way that we see the aftermath. And then in this, we get that same view of those guys coming for him, but from the inside of the house and from like what is and from his perspective of, oh, my God, they're coming for me. I watched them take Mike. They're going to come take me. And that does end up happening in the sort of uh, closest thing to like a thrillery element that actually takes place in the film, which is that almost like a serial killer thing for just like, you know. 20 seconds or something like that well yeah because she she goes to get him a drink which he interprets as her going for the knife and i I do like the one really nice 
nice editing detail of her glancing at the knife earlier in that scene, though, because yeah, it was totally. some, she 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 was thinking about yep. it. He's not like entirely paranoid that she might have went for that knife. I don't think in yeah. that um, moment she was because when he saw it, she looked down and she saw it after him, and she was like, "No, no, 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 it's not." Yeah, yeah. What I was doing. <laughs> but I think that like you're right, it was on her mind. But in that moment, I don't actually think she was like tricking him and going to go yeah. for the knife and going to turn to stab, going to stab him. Yeah, yeah. but it, but it's it's I, it's another detail that kind of just puts it a little bit empathetic in a like it gives an empathetic view of both characters in that moment right totally. it's, it's something that james bridges really likes to do is to complicate enough that you kind of get the perspectives of you know like like even watching this psycho who's attacking her it doesn't feel good to watch him in this serial killer almost sequence yeah. where you know he's yeah. trying to come after her and chase her through all the various doors and just like screaming and, and crying after her essentially and then getting pulled away presumably by the same enforcement men who uh killed Mike in this like really they're just they're in and out they grab him and and what's amazing about it is that you get this really complex sense of relief because it it was operating in the way that one of those set pieces work where you're freaking out that she's you know she's in danger she's gonna he's gonna break through the door he's gonna attack her and now that's not happening so immediately there is a catharsis to that just inherent but then also you're like you're still pretty freaked out about what happened to him. You're like, oh, it was almost like when a, when a bigger fish eats a smaller fish kind of moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because like, and, and you know how just absolutely off his rocker he is at this point. Cause they even include this awesome detail where she like, subtly fakes uh the fridge shaking to be like there's an earthquake <laughs> and he's so coked out of his fucking mind that he sees one that of the bottles her? He's yeah. like, oh shit we gotta get <laughs> like i thought that that and it actually like as as silly as it kind of sounds in the moment because it's so manic and you and you do really understand pete's mindset at this point uh it, it makes total sense to me and i really like that he would fall detail. for it 100 yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and then the other detail which is kind of terrifying honestly is that shot where it shows the open door. He's about to come in and, and kill her. Oh, it's and, terrifying. Uh, and it's just, you see just like um, like dark gloved hands just grab him, take him out of the frame. And you also hear him scream for his life. He's like, no, I don't want to die. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Like he just goes yeah. off until you finally hear the door close and him put into a car and dr- driven off. And so even when you have that relief of her, you know, she's not going to die. That's great. And we love, we love Betty. We love Deborah Winger. But it's still such a terrifying sense of relief where it's like, what the fuck did he just get grabbed by? Like, it almost feels like a yeah, monster. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's great. I loved I loved that uh, this whole sequence. I thought it was great. And then mm-hmm. uh, Pete's aftermath, too, is what I was referencing <laughs> with the, uh, the, the the aftermath of Mike. This one is is just just as cold it's it's basically they they just take you you see a van pull up in like a landfill or like a construction site of some kind with a lot of just piled dirt and he's got a bag over his head they toss the body out and they just but it's one of those see-through plastic bags where you can actually like see him like like trying to breathe but it's yeah yeah, it's brutal and then and then the he even kind of holds on the shot where the the van goes out of frame and you just see the body in the dirt and um it's just it's so it's so cold and really like those two moments are besides the kind of implications of the kidnappings um are really the only like violent violent moments that you see on screen uh Mm -hmm. besides maybe some like roughhousing um Mm -hmm. so they just really stand out and and that coldness really gets to me it's it's scary stuff 
Yeah, it's funny that 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 actually that like literally that one shot as well as like you know it's aesthetically and like just like and dramatically it works really well, uh, but I think it's the one scene that I actually don't really like just because it does actually it's kind of the only time where we're not seeing things from Betty's perspective anymore mm. and like this isn't her like she doesn't see this she doesn't know this is happening mm. and everything that comes before it is kind of like her uncovering these things so I kind of actually think it would be better. Um, it would just, you know, in, in terms of, like, consistency with the rest of the film, if that didn't happen. Yeah, well, I was going to say, other than the little bit of cross-cutting with Mike and Pete, right? Because, yeah, like, in, in the early stuff, there's a lot of scenes that are, like, just them. Like, or when the actual doing drug, the drug dealer, dealer yeah. at the at the Chili Burgers and the, and the uh, you know, stealing the cocaine. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are a couple scenes that, that kind of break her pers- perspective. But, but, but most Pete, of them... But it is yeah, also but but I, but I think they're meant Betty. to be mics, right? Yeah, and then a little bit with Pete, I guess, right. when he's going insane. They're way fewer <laughs> than Betty, though. Betty is absolutely Betty the is definitely focus. the yeah the perspective. And to be honest, um, like I could see a cut where you don't show Pete's aftermath, and it's just like because like that scene is terrifying on its own, where you just see him get snatched up. He screams for his life. He gets taken into a van, and then, and then, then you gone. never hear from him again. Yeah, like that yeah. is terrifying on its own. So I, I totally <clears> could see both. Yeah, working. I see that yeah, point. I totally get that. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then it's I just, guess it's just we get one... kind of like an aftermath of Betty. It's like a couple weeks later, I believe. Yeah, and she she's just she she's playing her scales. Yeah, and, she's like uh, I am being careful. <laughs> and her yeah, parents trying to convince her to like buy a gun or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that'll solve it. <laughs> yeah, and just yeah, it life goes a, on. And I did really like this um this ending just because it's it's a moment of like it, it seems like it's the first time you get to see her think of Mike, and it's not in this like totally grieving way there's actually a subtle smile to her she does the scale that she was playing at the beginning it's it's kind of sweeps into this overall score like ending score crescendo um and Mm -hmm. i I believe she looks at one of the like the i think it's like a row of pictures that are polaroids but it's i don't know if it's just polaroids but i thought there was a term Mm -hmm. for it but regardless she's looking at that that's on the mirror Mm -hmm. and it's it's just it's just a well deserved moment for her character to to you know have a, at least and a it, little it is bit a of, nice little bit of warmness after uh, that yeah, big finale mm-hmm. for sure and and it is it definitely is and to true think to fondly I think, of him instead of just think of like yeah. the blood bath that she's been witnessing this whole time. Yeah, well, and, and 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 it mirrors what he's doing with the opening as well, right? Where he she she is trying to remember him in a, and memorialize him a little bit in from her own perspective, uh, yeah. even despite everything that she's uh, seen. And it, it 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 does feel like the moment where she's going, I don't want to know. If you, <laughs> I yeah. don't want to know anything else, I'm gonna sit in my my apartment for the rest for, yeah. from <laughs> now Philip on. Philip was right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good now. I'm ready to live lead a boring life from now on. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm going back to the bank. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so it's kind of nice in that way. But I think uh, pivoting towards the reductive rating ground, um, uh, which for you, Brennan, is where we remove all the words, all the nuance and reduce the movie uh, to a number between one and five. But it's also final statements or any final scenes or shots or anything that we missed that we might want to mention. Maybe if you had any stories about Tommy's chili burgers, you sounded like you wanted to talk <laughs> about earlier. Um, but uh, but but for me, this was a very solid too. I think honestly, even kind of like a high four for me. Um, I definitely had to uh, adjust to the film. Like I, I was yeah. watching it early and I wasn't exactly sure what I was watching. But in, in really like reading about Bridges's perspective when he was making it and seeing how all of those autobiographical elements like really seeped into so many of the style choices um, and 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 so much of the mood of the film and so much of the performances of the film like it does really feel like there's something being you know really personally uh, exercised here that I I found really 
powerful and it really did kind of just lodge in my brain like I, I put it on I went to bed right after it I woke up the next morning and like images of it were kind of replaying in my head a little bit I was thinking about it and um, you know it doesn't happen with every film that you watch so I for, for me this was honestly yeah this is probably the um, uh, high four and I do think that for anyone who really likes you know, if you like neo-noir, if you like a girl going detective mode and going into the smoggy, daylit L.A. drug scene and getting into the scuzz, getting into the horror of these guys who are desperate and on the run. And like this movie does kind of give you that, but it does give it to you in an off kilter way you maybe haven't seen before. And which is a very slow, downbeat, very tragic kind of register to it that I found just really effective and honestly very um very, very moving, especially with how it treats Mike and how it treats mm -hmm. it, it, it and and how it does give him this kind of Laurel Palmer esque uh, quality where right down to, you know, uh, the criminal life and the photographs and the films. And it, and it does become about how there's people who are in your life and they're maybe they're beautiful. Like everyone talks about this Mark guy that James Bridges knew. And they, they said literally he was just like he was a, like a like a light. He was a beam. Everyone looked towards him and someone can be like that and be so full of life and make plans to see you later that night. And then suddenly they are just like confusingly and horribly stolen from you. And, um, mm. you know, despite your, you know, need for answers or your compulsion for to, to find something, get some sort of closure out of it. You, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the world doesn't give it to you. And I think this movie really captures that uh, feeling. And it is a really a shame that Warner doesn't seem to be more proud of it um, because yeah. they really refused to give it a proper release when it came out because it, it, not even I don't think that they didn't think the movie was good. It got really great reviews. Every like the people who did see it really liked it. Um, it was just a case of uh, it wasn't the urban cowboy hit. It, I think specifically Jack even said in the interview that like it wasn't a date movie. It was a feel bad movie. It wasn't uh, and they it, it wasn't going to get the kind of numbers that they wanted to get when they heard Deborah Winger and James Bridges were hanging out. And if that's your reason for like kind of making this only available to people on DVD or on like uh, if you can torrent a, a stream of someone's Turner classic movies when it airs, <laughs> like that's really the only way that you can get this film. And yeah, it sucks. This should this should be more widely available because um, this is great. And I'm really glad Brendan showed it to us. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. The one I think the one that me and you watched Josh was the uh, Turner Classic Movies version, was it not? Where it yeah, because I wanted to watch it in 1080p. Yeah, it yeah, has the watermark exactly. on it, but I yeah. wanted to see but 1080p. But it was, 1080p. That's That's was an HD TV rip. Yeah, no, actually, do you know what? It might have even been HD TV rip too. I'm not sure which uh, one it was. I might have to get that from you. I've never seen it in HD. Okay, <laughs> we can send it. Um, we'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, I'm also going to give it a four out of five. I think this is great. I've I've only I think this is now just my second James Bridges movie, but I I really like his style. He's got this like a uh, kind of takes like this grounded realism and then kind of sneaks these genre elements into it, which is really interesting. And I and I like it. It really makes you sit with the characters and um, really empathize with them. So I I love his style. I think it's awesome. I don't have to dive into him a little more. Um, and Deborah Winger is fantastic. Mark Keelown, Daryl Larson, they're they're really really good. Um, uh, I think that this is like I like the slow approach to it, like you said, Josh. I think that although I you know it'd be interesting to watch that cut that we were been talking about with a little bit more um, I guess grit and violence. Uh, I do like that this is so pulled back and mostly from the perspective uh, of Betty, um, because then it's just you know you can really. Like we said, it kind of adds to the 
unfortunate, maybe, I guess, imagination of what that violence would be when she stumbles mm -hmm. upon these things or even yeah. learns something about um, uh, Mike. So I, I like that. Yeah, it's, really that focus it's on like the haunting her. absence of, you know, of yeah. information. And yeah, it does it well. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a it's a beautiful looking film, too. Um, uh, I really mm -hmm. did like the the look of it. It's uh yeah, I think this is great. I, I would highly recommend it. I, it's just, it's an absolute shame that this thing is not released properly. That's crazy to me. Um, so, yeah, we got to fight for it on this show right now. So everybody check it out. <laughs> we can uh, send it to you if you need it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give yeah. us an email. <laughs> We're spreading the word. But, yeah, it's great. Four out of five. Yeah, the um, the rating system is so funny to me because I – it. it I don't really ever seek perfection when I watch movies, and I know that this isn't a perfect film. Like you know, we've we've all seen perfect oh, yeah. films before. They're they're great. <laughs> we all love perfect films, <laughs> but th that's not what this is. And I feel like this is kind of better for it. Um, what I really love about mm -hmm. this is it does have that kind of haunting quality that you really touched on, Josh. And uh, it's a movie that really does burrow itself inside your brain, and specifically. It's, I, I love a movie that you can really see the director in it and see why he made the choice he did and kind of where he was at. And I feel like there's no better director than James Bridges for that. Um, we didn't really get into it, but like he, as this uh, openly gay man from Arkansas, tried to make a career, um, making a career in Hollywood, he always kind of felt like this outsider looking in. And I think that's how he, how L.A. looks in this movie is how he sees L.A. and how he sees the people in it. And all that sadness that you're seeing, that's all him kind of like portraying that or him, uh, him kind of pushing that forward. Um, and going into this film, knowing that it's, you know, a neo-noir, it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great hook, but it isn't like Chinatown where the plot slowly uncovers and like you have these like, it turns out that like, oh, all these people are, are in on it. It's really not that film at all. Um, it's a film that's all about images and mood. And I mean, that, uh, the, uh, the chili burger, the, the opening scene with that chili burger getting flipped at uh, Big Tommy's, I feel like that is the biggest indication to like, oh, that's what kind of L.A. this movie is. Um, yeah, exactly. And by the way, I got excited when you said Big Tommy's because I actually looked it up. That place is still there. It's That's still a, oh man! I, was, I was just in LA. I should have went. And I know. Found it. Uh, there was a <laughs> fire the apparently, and it was shut down for a while. And then, <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of locations that are still there. Even like the apartment complex, like the actual apartment complex that he got murdered in. Because I noticed the, I noticed the, the address on it. Looked it up, and sure enough, like yeah, it's still there. The same awning is still there, and everything. Like this LA still okay. actually exists. All right, next time the Mike's murder uh, location tour. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a yeah. bus yeah, tour. That's awesome. <laughs> but really, I feel like that's this a film, niche tour right there. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a film about images and mood and like kind of how like, you know, the camera rounding a hallway of an apartment complex felt like a that pot of milk boiling over. And when Sam pours vodka in it to like tone it down, like those are the kind of images that really burn themselves into your brain. And uh, the way that L.A. is kind of in this constant state of fog, um, there's just something that makes me keep coming back to it. And for me, that's what film is about. So for me, this is a five. Nice. Hell yeah. Love it. Honestly, I wouldn't, I could, I could say, I'm going to sit with this one and I'm going to come back to mm. it for some repeat viewings. I mean, I, I don't think it's impossible for me to get there either because it's just, yeah, but on a, yeah. Yeah, I definitely do recommend revisiting. I mean, it's always good to revisit every movie, but I feel like this one, it does have a certain rewarding element to it that a lot of films don't have. Hell yeah. Well, I think that that is uh, going to do it um, for Mike's murder, uh, but we're going to be right back and we're going to be talking about house, heartbreakers. Great Stick around. car, great clothes, great women, small talk, great sex, and afterwards nothing. I can't be alone for a minute. 
I've been alone for the past five years. I'm alone when we're together. When you're painting, you don't know I exist. Those are the strongest feelings I know. Those are the most powerful images I know. That's my art. Your art's a joke. I can't paint, can I? <laughs> I'm blue. Cheer up. All right, we are back, and we are talking Heartbreakers, the 1984 uh, American, I don't actually even know where to start with this one, like uh, <laughs> buddy hangout, but it's still definitely got some like drama elements. I've got some, uh, some, some more harrowing aspects to it that we'll get to, um, but it is directed uh, by this uh, director named Bobby Roth, who is a Los Angeles uh, filmmaker and primarily a television director now who still does episodes of TV um, uh, like even to this day and uh, got started in TV uh, around this time actually in the 80s he did episodes of Miami Vice he did episodes of Crime Story so like anyone who's seen those shows you think you will have some idea of how he shoots LA the the, the, the neon the color that element of it anyway um, but before he got picked up by those shows he was actually doing um, self-financed independent films uh, one was a thesis at UCLA about a couple sort of struggling to make uh, ends meet in Los Angeles, but set against the backdrop of a local uh, worker strike. Uh, he did another one called The Boss's Son, which was a sort of loosely autobiographical film um, about working for his flooring business father. Uh, and and I don't I haven't watched it, so I can't say for sure. But the tagline tries to make it sound like it's a riff on blue collar as well, which I, I don't know how okay. true that is. But it but the tagline was if blue collar knocked your dick in the dirt, get down and boogie with the boss's son. And I was, I was like, it's I was an interesting. so curious. Is that an official tagline or is that just something on Letterboxd that somebody wrote? That might just be something on Letterboxd. I, and I might have just trusted it's it. But regardless. It's in the back of a VHS cover, but I love it. It, it really has a ring to it. I like the energy. They're selling it for sure. You know, I would be more interested in that film hearing that tagline. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he also did a um, some sort of like corporate satire thriller about like EST. Have you seen that one, Brendan? I unfortunately haven't. There's a, a lot okay. of the films are difficult to to find, and I'm I'm really excited to. Yeah, his I've, films are even harder to find than James Bridges. Is hard yeah, to find I mean, ones. I'm really just coming to Bobby Roth since finding this film. So there's oh, and there's so many of them, and uh, yeah, he's got so many of them, um, and a lot of them are like you know TV films. But there are like, like exactly like you said, he kind of started off as this kind of like you know art house director making very personal films that he'd self-finance, got into television, but seemingly kind of like kept his nature through all of them. And he really has his stamp that's followed throughout his uh, his career. Um, I would kind of describe him as it, almost like he's like a uh, Robert Altman meets Michael Mann. Like that seems to be his general kind mm -hmm. of like aesthetic and approach. Yeah. Did you know that he was neighbors with Michael Mann? I did. I know that is how <laughs> Tangerine Dream came to score this film, which is really exciting. Yeah, I thought that was a hilarious detail because I think Brendan and I both have the uh, new Fun City Editions Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray for the film Heartbreakers, yeah. which I would highly recommend people pick up if they it's beautiful. are interested. It's a really good restoration. The interview that they did with Bobby Roth is really informative and is going to give us a lot of the sort of background information where we're probably going to have sourced in, in this. And I, yeah, I mean, speaking to it as someone who was watching this for the first time and Brendan, obviously, who's already seen it and is prepping people to go and watch a screening of it. All I can say is go out and seek this film out. I was totally blindsided um, by um, 
this because it, it has a very similar to Mike's murder. I guess you could say it, it does have um, a sort of tender, uh, lonely quality to it, even if it has a little bit more fun while it's hang- having it. There's a, there's, it's a, it's a sexier film. It's a little bit more of a fun film. The, the actors and the sort of chemistry between the two leading men is, is uh, quite uh, interesting. Uh, but it is given this kind of like aging, weariness to it um and for anyone uh, who is unfamiliar with the film which i imagine a lot of people will be because prior to this fun city edition release there really wasn't a, much of a way to find this film so it's it's been kind of saved in a way um it is um uh, loosely based on uh, the sort of like real friendships of the director Bobby Roth and and also a, a tiny bit of inspiration it sounds like from the real life painter Robert Blue who was a painter who painted a lot of uh, female figures and pinup girls and used Betty Page as a model for his paintings and I, I believe did provide most of the art we actually see in the film that's not Peter Coyote's art that is Robert Blue's art even if it's not really based on Robert Blue's life which I think is sort of a common misconception about the film it's it's Bobby mm. Roth's life um, um, and he kind of inhabits both characters in some ways. Like I think he pulled exactly. Yeah. What's the line here? I, like I'm, I, I, yeah, I have it here. He he, he quote on from Bobby Roth himself. Uh, these two characters are two sides of himself: the political artist and the business uh, man, uh, Jewish son. He says that they were waging war against each other in basically in, in, inside <laughs> of him. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, despite very clearly still having kind of like affection um, for one another. Um, and yeah, so for for anyone kind of unfamiliar it stars peter coyote hot off et uh as a man named arthur blue he's a very tough and brush uh brash sorry painter that was a little bit of uh, wordplay going on there um <laughs> a, of uh a fetish sort of dominatrix snm art uh sort of and uh, he does so to kind of like make ends meet but he's struggling to make ends meet uh with with the art and make an actual career out of it but he is best friends with a man named Eli, played by Nick Mancuso, who I believe this will be our first time ever talking about him, um, mm-hmm. who is, uh, you know, more of a charming, sincere kind of playboy and the son of a, you know, sort of like local wealthy um, businessman. And uh, so, yeah, these are the two sides of Bobby Roth, and he places them in this very sort of uh, impulsive, competitive atmosphere of uh, 80s Los Angeles, who was going to get more money than the other, who was going to get more women than the other, uh, despite the fact that both of these men are pushing 40 um, and <laughs> yeah. uh, definitely starting to feel the effects of that and uh, leading to, of course, the sort of big dramatic crux of the film, which I was surprised that kind of how long it takes to actually get to this element, because every sort of log line will say that this is like what the movie is about. But it takes a really long time to get to the fact that they are actually fighting over a woman in the film who is the uh, art gallery manager named Lily Ann, played by Carol Laurie. Um, and uh, further complications, obviously, uh, in, in, ensue from there. And But it really, it's used as a source of bubbling up their other jealousies and repressed feelings towards one another that come out in kind of these unhealthy ways uh and 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 uh ultimately i think bobby roth is saying uh men when will they learn to talk to one another <laughs> yeah when will they learn to hug it out yeah 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 come on kiss the homies we can we can do it fellas you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh well it's interesting too like they have a lot of um self-contradictions as characters like Eli for instance I think one of the first things you you hear him say when he's at the diner with Blue is that he's like he wants a relationship and is kind of uh, not enjoying uh, what he's doing but yet in every single scene that's 
that's all he's he is actively pursuing is kind of just the the superficial uh, getting laid, going out into the I guess the LA scene and the club scene or whatever it is, and just picking up women. Um, Bobby but, Roth was just bragging about being a hot dude in Los Angeles in the 1980s because yeah, yeah. even even in his interview I was like he gave off energy of like dude this guy fucking killed it in the day like he <laughs> he's got a tight black t-shirt on he had like a like little bead necklace like a Cali boy I was like god damn I know I want to choose my words because I'm probably going to send this to him and I want him to see it but uh, <laughs> seeing him I, I really want to know what his uh, you know his diet regimen his workout regimen is like because man if i could uh, age that well i would be a very happy man oh yeah, yeah? no same yeah no like Bobby the, the, the interview cut, huh? with him on yeah no he was looking good he was looking he's good a good looking sure. man uh, he's he's a handsome sharp. <laughs> not, not that i want to make him sound like a grandpa either or anything no, but no, he's no, no. you know he, he it was one of the best director interviews i think i've ever seen included on on a blu-ray that i've been watching recently and it was so informative oh, wow. so it was no it was he like so he seems like a really really cool guy and he also very humble about the fact that he was able to shoot a film with one uh, legendary german cinematographer michael bauhaus uh, famous for his oh, collaborations yeah. uh, with two really well-known filmmakers obviously martin scorsese uh, don't, what goodfellas after hours last temptation of christ color of money age of innocence i I can't even name them all. Um, but he uh, also for obviously Rainer Werner Fassbender for Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, Fox and His Friends, Marriage of Maria, Maria Braun. Like between those two filmmakers, he probably shot 30 of their films or something like that. Yeah. And, and when you say between in, those two in, filmmakers, this literally did land like between those two filmmakers. Yeah, exactly. And and then and even then, that doesn't even that's not even the end of it. Like we've actually talked about him before because of things like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula arguably one of the best looking films of the 90s uh, in oh, between yeah. working with these filmmakers uh james l brooks's broadcast news which is you know kind of an understated work but very good even on the trashier end wolfgang peterson's air force one <laughs> gorgeous movie the tracking maneuvers <laughs> through that giant plane set amazing like michael bauhaus unquestionably one of the best cinematographers maybe of all time um and he definitely like roth got him before scorsese did <laughs> Yeah, that's, <laughs> on, that's on, this, on this he on this really small little movie the, about his life. Yeah, <laughs> he is one of the best in the biz. It's one of the, one of the best we ever had, and solely missed. Yep. You know, what's yeah, interesting and he really does see, give uh, this film some mood and some lushness. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I also just just this is more funny, but uh, the editor I was looking at just to see because I always like just click through on Letterbox to see what else they've done. Uh, John Carnachan. Uh, he also did Ice Age. The original oh. Beauty and the Beast, The Simpsons movie, Robots, Arthur Christmas, and then randomly Heartbreakers. It's it's like huh. it's just such an outlier, and I found that to be quite interesting. He also did Walking randomly. with Dinosaurs. What do you, what do you mean? Movie. That's a yeah. So anyway, yeah, you were just listening Michael Bauhaus's credits. I thought. Oh no, no, that would have been. <laughs> yeah, uh, Michael Bauhaus famous for Walking yeah. with the Dinosaurs, the movie. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, no, but he so he so he he got to work with with a ball house and do and we'll talk about it throughout the film because there's so many amazing fluid tracking shots and great use of, you know, like neon colors and the decadent sort of L.A. art world and mixed in with some of the, you know, as Brendan was putting it for both of these films, some of the dingier locations and streets and, you know, sort of clubs and hangouts. And I love the burger joint they go to in the film, specifically, um, which just opened in Toronto, by the way. Oh, my. OK, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to check it out. Um, But um 
uh, also, as Brendan already mentioned too, scored by the legendary Moody pulsating synth composers Tangerine Dream, who uh, we previously talked about on episodes for Sorcerer, Thief, Near Dark, Legend, uh, and, and at the time of uh, composing this would have just been hot off the one-two punch of the keep and risky business, which we've done episodes on on as well for anyone interested. But like, I love the throbbing like enthusiasm of the way that it populates the LA art scene environment yeah. of this film, and it's definitely more in like the poppier, romantic, electronic intensity realm that we talked a little bit about in something like like risky business versus some of the yeah. more like I guess haunting tones of like sorcery. Yeah, for it's no, I would say that this is more in the realm of like thieves beach theme. Yeah, it's got like that yeah. kind of vibe to. If we're right, talking yeah. about what Tangerine Dream were in, that's I think the Tangerine Dream that they were uh, opting for. Because well, ultimately, uh, like the, yeah. the tone of the film is is like yeah, you're you are seeing a lot of darkness within these characters, but they are trying to kind of evade that a little bit. Like it it does still have a very upbeat sense to it. Um, so it, it, I guess yeah. you kind of have, yeah. You, they, they they're they're trying to keep to the, the party music. going despite the fact that they're in the tenth year of a hangover. You yeah, know, that's exactly. the kind of vibe vibe of the film. Yeah. But it, but I like how much it empathizes with this and has fun with what it is they are trying to maintain, like the actual hangout bromance vibes of the film which i i found a review that kale did because kale is actually one of the champions of this film early on when it came out and uh she called it she had a great term for it it was a uh, west coast bohemianism <laughs> 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 and uh it, i mean it, it it is it's what it is like it's it's driving in the neon underpasses it's the pastel aerobic sessions at the gyms it's the abstract art galleries the hanging out at the diners and you know, um, you know, all their drunken nights out on the town. And like it, it, it definitely has, you know, uh, a real sense of fun with that. But it does have a creeping element of, you know, this party's coming to an end a little bit and these guys have to change. They need to do something different. And in, in that regard, I'll say it kind of upfront. The, di- the dynamic to me was all Cassavetes. Yeah. Like I was oh, sure. I was watching it and I was going, dude, like. The uh, the Cassavetes um, and Falk uh, Falk uh, relationship in Mikey and Nikki by Elaine May mm-hmm. is exact. Uh, this is not as existentially horrifying as that film is for anyone who's going to be watching this. The, for the a first gentler time. husbands. <laughs> it, uh, yes, exactly. Straight up, like it is. Just it has it has that sort of slice of life. Uh, kind of a little bit of sort of prickly nature between the way that they interact with one another, but it is very ultimately kind of empathetic and definitely a much sexier film than it. I mean, you could argue some of Cassavetti's early ones are, I guess, but I don't know. This is like, you know, more of that 1984 sexy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't, I mean, I, I don't want to make any accusations about Cassavetti's, but I feel like one thing that's different is... Uh, this film really loves its characters and although it it criticizes them, it's very critical of some of their behavior, but ultimately every character and not just like our two leads, but literally every character in the movie, you really do feel there is a very specific kind of love for just how they're written, how they're performed and the kind of respect they give to like, they all kind of get a memorable moment. There's not a single wasted performance or nobody's just kind of thrown away. Everybody leaves an impression. Absolutely. Yeah. And every every character seems to have their own strength. Like we were talking about um, Saturday Night Fever, for instance, uh, a week or two ago. And as much as like I love I love that film, but there are characters sometimes that are almost seem seemingly built to be kind of weak and pathetic in a way that can be a little bit maybe, I don't know, uh, 
convenient. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think that, like, when, you know, like, for instance, when Sid and and Blue go up against each other and, like, start fighting about the relationship, you do kind of see both sides and strengths and both arguments and strengths and both character traits and and all of that. So I I think that there is a lot of uh, um, really balanced uh, character work here that I think is great. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's sort of like the central sort of relationship dynamic at the heart of the film was something I didn't expect to be as um, thorough. And Brendan said the word vulnerable, too. Mm-hmm. I think that that's like a really important aspect that like yeah. there's so many scenes of these guys framed in a two shot together and you see how close they are. And occasionally, you know, it, it, it kind of breaks them up as wedges start to kind of form mm-hmm. uh, b- between them. But there is a there, there's a painfulness to that. There's something kind of sweet about them. There's something kind of, you know, like there's real genuine feelings for one another in a very open way that you might not expect of a, you know, sort of like night. Like you feel like these characters in another film made by another worse filmmaker would be really cruel to each other yeah. or they would get incredibly violent. And there is a fight scene in this film between the two men, but it it's not filmed for maximum rage and damage we can do to another. It is just just kind of sad and and the the yeah. dynamic is really established throughout even in the opening montage which are just like sounds of the the smacks and the yells of mm-hmm. blue and eli playing squash with one another yeah, and obviously immediately, in the change room and <laughs> yeah but but i like how immediately it indicates their competitiveness like how competitive these two guys are they're literally playing up against each other and they're separated in the framing and they're at, at, almost attacking at one another with the the sounds that they're making and yeah. and they're doing so in a space they will literally fight in later in the film and while the huge but then the you know like the huge pulsy spacey spacey like almost jazzercise synths kind of cut in and it's this it's this cutesy almost like comedy film couple stuff where it's like two shots of them showering together or my favorite one when they share the comb which is just a <laughs> detail I would just like that is not going to be in another 80s movie that these two guys are like here you go man here's your turn with the comb and then checking out girls working out and smoking and Kinda you know they are just there uh uh it's it's like a nicer version of that Italian film that we watched with the two cops that like have like matching <laughs> underwear together and shit like that. Yes, uh, live like a cop, die like a man. <laughs> yeah, Those two guys are yeah. attached at the hip for sure, but yeah. in a really dark way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would actually make an interesting double feature with Heartbreakers. That's pretty funny. Have you ever yeah, seen two that male movie, uh, friendship movies? Have you ever seen the movie Righteous Kill? Uh, that's oh. the the first time that De Niro and Al Pacino actually like shared yes, screen a, a long, long. It's time not a ago. good movie, but there is an opening credit scene that's basically it's kind of it's it reminded me of this. Like it's a uh, it's a montage of mm-hmm. them like you know getting ready together. At one point, like Al Pacino like fix like helps uh, <laughs> helps De Niro like adjust his tie, and it's just like a montage <laughs> of them doing things together. And that's exactly what you just described in a movie that's doing the same thing, but by a. <laughs> And not as effective director, or I guess I shouldn't say director, the direction isn't as effective. That's kind of what you get, and it doesn't work. And the fact that this does work really speaks volumes to the talent involved. Definitely. But yeah, yeah, it it definitely wants to show a connection between these men, despite the difference in lives that they live and Mm. difference in way that they dress, the way that they perform to each other. Like I, you know, Peter Coyote is in his, you know, he's got more sort of like aged lines to his face and throws on his big leather jacket while Makuso is, you know, he's slicking the hair. He's got the suit on. And, you know, obviously it's identifying the difference in the world that they operate. Like one of them is a painter of scantily clad, objectified pinup girls 
Nichols, uh, who sells portraits to the only place who will buy them, which is a filthy porno magazine, uh, essentially, which, by the way, the printer of which is the uh, Roadhouse bartender Jacques from Twin Peaks, which I was like, motherfucker. Oh, I didn't even realize that. I, I, I couldn't course. miss I haven't I even watched time. it recently. I didn't, yeah, I didn't get that he, far. I knew I recognized him, too. Didn't put that together. Yeah, he is just one of the largest, slimiest looking men. Such a big face. Yeah. This era. <laughs> I, I love him. Um, it's funny because he's and, got a small uh, face on a big head. It's such a defining yes. quality. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, while, while Eli is, uh, you know, his day job is he's in offices. He's in his father's, um, sort of factory. He's, uh, selling, uh, it's, it's women's like undergarments and clothing and sportswear sort of like all, like he does kind of all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't seem um, satisfied and, with it. But I like that they also have professions that involve women. Like he yes. is one who paints women. He is one who sells women's clothes. They both, it definitely both identifies the fact that they have sort of transactional relationships with women, including rocky ones and confusing ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. women in ways kind of become symbols or playthings for their search for, you know, something deeper in this uh, sort of like shallow lifestyle that they are kind of living and being um, woken up from. Um, obviously in, in, in different ways where blue is like so committed to fiddling around with his pieces in his open space loft that, uh, looks more like an art installation than an apartment. Basically like I, that yeah. early scene of Sid just, uh, you know, changing in front of him cause they don't have a bedroom or a closet. It's just like hangers next to like a brick wall. I thought that was yeah. a funny detail. Yeah. It's um, like the only time you see uh, blue rest or sleep is also just on his table in the middle of the art room at one point. Too. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very strange uh, layout yeah <laughs> talk about a guy who's committed to his work he literally doesn't have a room to sleep in he's yeah. just like no no it's it, it's like, all the workspace i've got this table in my pants yeah there, there's no space for anything else despite the fact that this thing is not actually making me financially stable and it's not actually even paying the rent for this space which it is entirely up to sid um who he is neglecting uh, and played by Catherine harold by the way who is amazing so good in uh yeah, and in uh, especially Albert Brooks's Modern Romance, which was the, probably the most recent thing that I've watched her in, but I really love her in that film. And yeah, she she gets to you know very openly challenge Blue right at the beginning of the movie, and is like you know like you this is going nowhere i am still just like treated as like an object who lives in your workspace despite the fact that you know i'm kind of paying for it and you know you don't pay attention to me there's no future in this relationship and you know other artists you know who are also successful (laughs) can make time to actually hang out with their uh partners so she decides that she is going to be leaving him and going and uh uh, hitting up with this artist named King played by Max Gale with the, uh, I gotta say, I, I like that he seems like a cool dude and I like <laughs> the scenes with him. The worst long haired bald spot. I think a man has ever rocked dude, he in a is movie. Hanging on to those bangs for dear life. <laughs> dear and life. I'm like, just a- cut him and be a sidekick. Bro. What are you doing? Just like, just shave it off. It's, all it's good. an interesting choice that because flow. just, just long sidekick, you know, that's, that's what you need to do. It's yeah, such an interesting choice because, like, anyone else, I think, would have just, you know, shaved that down or, like, you know, done something, you know, not left it as unkempt. Or, like, again, yeah, just, like, shave the front. Uh, that would have been fine. But I think it speaks to just how much confidence he exudes that he's just yeah. like, no, fuck it. I'm leaving it. Absolutely Do not. you know what I love about totally. his character, too, is he's totally set up as a character. And this speaks to Brendan's point, too, that he – I think Bobby – 
does really treat characters with kindness in a way that other filmmakers wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But King is totally set up as a character who's like, he's stolen your girlfriend. He's the shitty artist who's making money. Uh, when when you're you know you're dying you're dying and because starving your for truth. your principles yeah, as yeah. a great artist. He's a yeah. sellout villain. The, yeah, the movie does not fall into any of those traps. He is a good artist. Yeah. He is a kind dude. He kind of just is a better dude with his shit together, and he's probably a better fit for Sid. Of and course, that was he an angle her. to this. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, but, and but you know what? that can't was let go of that like romanticization of the true artist, and it's like, well, Sid should just want that inherently. Like that should just be kind of. Um, uh, yeah. what is desirable uh, because I think at even a certain point he, when he's talking to uh, to King about his work and it's it, it's a big scene where he's kind of making a scene about it but I like what he says where he's just like like he's he's quote unquote complimenting him and saying things like oh yeah your art belongs anywhere you could put it up any place because it's kind of just like this is the <laughs> most generic shit dude. I've yeah. ever heard in my entire or seen in my yeah. entire life this anyone yeah. would accept this your, good job yeah your art is accessible yeah. I make like yeah, exactly. challenging you know, this Starbucks <laughs> yeah. 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 a motel yeah. this would fucking do wonders yeah exactly yeah yeah which is which is so funny because then he realizes obviously over the course of the film that he doesn't necessarily need to put people off in order to do the things that he wants to. He doesn't need to put things in between them, which again, this is this is Michael Bio, so there's some really intelligent framing throughout that we'll get Ooh, into. Yeah. But I do love that the first shot we're introduced to of Sid is that amazing establishing spinning shot through the loft when he's taking a photo of Candy, who is his uh pinup model, who he actually dresses and we'll get to her character. She's a really important character, yeah. actually. Yeah, totally. Um but the she's she's you know uh, dressed up and positioned exactly how she how he wants she's got the heels on you know she's got her uh a very large breasts uh just at the perfect angle he wants for the photo that he's taking yeah and her heel is literally framed in the spinning shot of um between him and sid who is walking into the loft with the groceries and I just went, if that is not like, here's a man letting his art get in between him and his girlfriend while she, he's taking photos of a model and she is actually bringing in, in the groceries. I was just like, immediately I clocked what their relationship was like before they spoke a word to one another. Oh, totally. Another, another good example of how he just kind of puts these characters into, into those situations and gives you these subtle clues of what's going on. Like, um, when uh, Blue sneaks into Eli's house before he's like taking that date home and when he arrives and they get to the bedroom he's just there and Eli <laughs> has a reaction that is not what you think is typical which is what the fuck are you doing in my room dude I've got a date what like why are you here this is the most weird situation I've ever been in he's just kind of like, I loved What's that up? scene the whole <laughs> you know scene I mean? like it's like uh, oh you want to talk and we'll just you know talk to this uh th- this date I have while she's half naked and we're just gonna start talking about like yeah relationships that's so and incredible be- yeah because Eli's problem is obviously that he's having one night stands in his uh, beautiful expensive uh, almost body double-esque LA house mm-hmm. um, which I you know like obviously it's kind of like it's hilarious that this is viewed maybe this is just a very 80s thing but obviously this is a huge problem for this man yeah there's uh, is, is, is the hollowness of this beauty uh beautiful lifestyle and his expensive yeah. things um, sure yeah but, uh, that was the scene though, that, <laughs> that, that was a scene that made me the, the first time that i was like oh i'm actually seeing something that i've never quite seen before or not so much that i've never seen i've never seen like this scene happen but the way that it played out felt so unique and i feel like especially like 
of that time, a normal... I shouldn't say normal, like a, a more traditional film of that of that era. How that scene would have played out would have been like, you know, it would have been played for laughs where he's like, oh, what are you doing here? And the woman would have, you know, grabbed her clothes and screamed and ran to the next room while the right, two exactly. men had a conversation. And the fact that she was actually part of that conversation, it didn't spook her. She kind of immediately inserted herself into that conversation and asserted herself. goes to show, and that kind of comes back to what I was saying before, how like every single character gets to be somebody and feel important yes, into the story. Yeah. And that was such a great example of that and it took this turn that I did not see coming and that was when I was like oh there's something there's something happening here and it got me really excited to watch the rest of the film yeah even like her whole that whole scene she you know I don't think she pops back up again but she has a significant role oh does she maybe she works at the uh, the health club yeah okay okay um, but this, like this scene, is a, a fairly significant scene, and and they they have these small details about her that are kind of unnecessary, but just great. Like when she starts talking about like I don't believe in orgasms, I just think it should be like an energy, a transfer of energy, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Like they they just have these um, these details that you don't you just would not need, but it just it, it creates a more lively environment and and. Uh, lively characters it's awesome yeah man they're just having deep late night chats about modern dating and love and sex in the middle of you know him throwing her nakedly on the bed in which peter coyote is just sitting on the end sulking (laughs) okay man i had a bad day like this is i think it like again like these relationships are just very nakedly honest and open in a way that you just kind of don't necessarily expect of you know, uh, even even just like a like a, a broy hangout movie, mm-hmm. like it's not how these guys usually would talk to one another in a film. And I, yeah, I think it's a yeah, it's they a genuinely kind of Bobby care Ross. about each other. And there's not yeah. that like um, a lot of these, like a lot of this this uh, th- these kind of dynamics with these more I guess I don't know macho playboy kind of guys have more of that aggression even towards each other. Like they do more insults to kind of show that they're being ridiculous for their emotions that they're feeling or something like that. And there is just every time they sit down and talk to each other, there's genuine care. Like, yeah, man, I've got you're, you're a I've got a shoulder to cry on kind of thing. And it, it, it is despite the fact that Blue is still incredibly impulsive and talks that way to yes, other men. It's sure. just not Eli. <laughs> well, because I was thinking about that part that you were talking about when he bursts into King's Gallery because, you know, he just went through this really horrible breakup with uh Sid in 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 their apartment where she you know she really does nail into him about like the fact that you know she's paying his bills and he's not treating her he's completely neglecting. She has this great and, line. And, sorry to interrupt. She has this great line where she goes, no, go "I've it. been alone for I've been alone for the past five years. I'm alone when we're together." That is just so cutting. And again, without oh, yeah. kind of giving a bunch of exposition to what the relationship was like, it's like you can tell that just by one line of dialogue that's like you know sold really well by a great actress. Uh, and I feel like yeah. it's just oh, it's just such a great example of how good she is and uh, how good the writing is. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and to that shot of her storming out in the fragmented mirror that's up against his mm-hmm. wall, and that slow dolly that pulls away as he watches her, her oh. leave and everything like that. Beautiful like it's shot. a it's a really really effectively uh, done scene, and is what directly results in Blue being like, well, obviously the guy who did this to me is is King, and he goes and confronts him about it. He's just like, you know, where did you find the time to draw all those little lines and fuck my wife? You know, <laughs> like, a great line. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and then line. King, I do love that. 
that King hits him back where he's just like, well, yeah, you can't paint or fuck. So like, <laughs> <laughs> like these are the ways you kind of expect sort of men in these kinds of films to talk to one another. And yeah. I, I do like that. It's in these specifically heated moments that blue kind of triggers because later there is a conversation between them that is a lot, you know, he, he it's a lot more toned down. It's a lot more honest. They do actually kind of agree to, you know, but you know, Maybe not necessarily be the best of friends, but, you know, they, you know, he, he didn't mean everything that he said to him necessarily um, in that, in that scene. And, but, but I, Peter Coyote, I do think is kind of like the, the anxious energy of this film. The way he physically moves through a space, the may, the way that he just like targets people and impulsively <laughs> moves towards them. It's it, far it, more like, unpredictable it, than Mancuso plays it, uh, Eli a hundred percent. Yeah. He's well, he, yeah, he plays him more caged and yeah, yeah this, yeah. this is more of like uh, you know, he's a fucking storm coming through mm-hmm. a scene. Like when he gets into that uh, gallery and he bullishly makes his way towards the director where he's just like, you know, check out my recent, you know, pinup portraits of garters and, and panties. And it seems like, I don't know if he's in the, he's in there to get what he wants which is to get a show but he does it in such a confrontational way that i was like is, is he trying to make a point that he can't get this thing and he wants to get thrown out that almost feels like the way that he's playing it and then mm-hmm. but then the the director is actually like oh these are sexy you know i have <laughs> I actually i have an open slot could you get me like 10 of these if you can like we'll get you like contracted up tomorrow <laughs> mm-hmm. and he's almost shocked at how like easily he's like okay i guess actually i i could make a career out of this and it's also an important scene because it's where he meets lillianne as well the uh mm-hmm. sexy french manager uh who is uh you know into dancing and aerobics and saying uh hangry a lot which is a kind of <laughs> ongoing joke which i guess is just how french people say hangry um <laughs> I don't I'm not exactly sure what was going on there. She says it multiple times uh, and and also uh, played by I, I might have to look this up again. The I think a French Canadian actress, which yes, I thought was is. sort of interesting as well. Yeah, there's actually oh, yeah, an interesting an, a singer, Canadian. There's an, yeah, there's an interesting Canadian connection because you've got Carol Loris. She's from uh, this film called Sweet Movie, which I actually haven't seen, uh, but is legendary for it's a very another sexually frank comedy uh, that. I, okay. I don't want to speak to it because I don't. I haven't seen the film, but I know that there's a a very infamous defecation scene in it. Uh, oh my god! Oh yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but yeah, apparently it's it's definitely something to see. Uh, and of course, Nick Mancuso, <laughs> who was technically born in Italy, but actually immigrated to Toronto when he was eight years old, so he is more or less a Canadian actor. Oh, you know, I did remember seeing a thing about apparently he was still teaching like acting yeah. classes or something like that up until now, like ten years ago. But, uh, yeah, he does live in Toronto. I'm going to try to get him up for the screening. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. Let's see if we can find him. Um, But, uh, yeah, and 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 but but Lillianne actually catches uh, Eli's attention because Eli is in a state of, he's in a very weird headspace where he is, as Jamie kind of mentioned, he's looking for real romance. He's looking for some sort of involvement with a woman in a way that he you know hasn't been getting from the white night one night stands that we see uh, blue interrupting. Um, and he's also wrestling uh, with the, uh, the the death of his father, which kind of occurs in sort of the early section of, of the film where he is now going to be having to take over uh, his father's business, take on all these, you know, sort of more responsibilities. He's being forced to think about, um, I mean, both characters are, I guess you could say, but he's really being forced to think about his future. He's like, I need to become my dad. I need to take over his business. I need to have a wife. I need to, you know, I need to do, do these things. These are the things that I am, are missing from my life that I probably should have already done because I'm pushing 40. Uh, meanwhile, Peter Coyote is totally totally kind of content to just like lash out at the world like a teenager in the exact same way that he probably did when he was like skateboarding around LA and 
getting into yeah. fights and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the thing that is interesting is, is I do think that despite the fact that blue is so impulsive, um, he, again, as we've kind of mentioned, like there, there is some, you know, real emotional, uh, undergirding to it, um, in a way. And, you know, some people might find it a little tired to be like, well, you know, the men are acting out and they're being angry and they're being violent, but it, you know, there's something else in there. But I think the way that Bobby Roth kind of approaches it is in this interesting way where like, for example, that coffin scene was one that like immediately stood out to me because they're, you know, he, he's helping his friend buy a coffin for his father. Mm-hmm. And the dude is basically trying to, he's like, well, your dad owned a business and he was an esteemed, you know, uh, you know, cultural figure. And, yeah, and so he's and, trying and, to, you know, him. And, you need to get something elegant. You need to get something expensive. And, right. you know, Peter Coyote is there to be like, no, simple. He left a business in trouble. My friend is taking it over. Make it black and wood and no jewels. And if you try to put the bite on my friend, I will pick one out for you. Which is like, <laughs> obviously, like a very macho line. But negotiate. I love how it immediately gives way to him walking over to Eli and basically just, you know, actually toning himself down and going like, is this one okay? Yeah. Like, yeah. Are, you know, can, can we, can, you know, are, how are you doing kind of deal? And, uh, yeah, the dynamics there are just, you know, the, the way that they move from like drunken asshole behavior into, mm-hmm. you know, sort of more affectionate moments like that is just interspersed throughout in a way that I, you know, really took to watching this. Yeah, because they're just, they're understandably flawed. Like, there's another uh, really interesting moment where um, Blue is having a, a fight with Sid, and it's about just kind of, like, the, the 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 philosophy of what he's trying to get at, which is, like, his art is pure, his art is true, you know, his <laughs> his art is kind of um, going against the, the grain and, and not being this, like, totally generic, accessible thing. And he and in the middle of this fight with Sid, he insults her art as well and says um, something towards the fact that it's like kind of generic, similar to what he says about King. Well, well, and she responds, I, I think he says, you, you think this is art? I think he says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something like that. And and she responds with like, this is what has paid the bills for five years. And you're going to like, this is what has allowed you to do what you have been doing for the last however long we've we were together. Um, and I just find that so interesting that it, it's kind of a big reveal for his character because it's like, yeah, he he comes off as that like, you know, just a true artist or whatever that um, but but really what has fueled him is that stuff that he thinks is, you know, this 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 uh, detriment to the art world or whatever. Um, and so there's just a inherent contradiction there. It's like you wouldn't have been able to even have your lifestyle without this thing that you find disgusting and ugly, I suppose. Yeah, well, and, and, and I like, too, that they, you know, like, these these guys are, you know, uh, again, they're they're trying to uh, sort of, like, relive this energy that, you know, they maybe had when, when they were young. And one of my favorite kind of um, I- examples of this is uh, the uh, big threesome scene. <laughs> Which is yeah. number two of the a scene that completely blew me away <clears throat> and... Yeah, Brendan, tell us about your first experience with this scene. I want to hear it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see. Where to begin? Where to begin? 
Um, I mean, we've seen like you know, I, I obviously it was it was obvious that it was amping up to a sex scene, and then when it was revealed that it was going to be a threesome, it was just kind of like I had no idea. Like every single step of the way, I had no idea where this was going to go. I guess I kind of thought that it was going to end in this like jealous rage, or there was going to be a fight involved. Somebody was going to get jealous of somebody, and they were going to use that kind of as a device for a conflict. Uh, that I mm-hmm. guess would have been my assumption. But seeing it played out the way it did, where going back to the vulnerability thing, you were just seeing these two men just kind of laying it all on the line. In this case, this was Eli doing this because he wanted to support Blue um, having, you know, having this, this relationship or having this connection. So he really did. He, he literally has to drag him out of sleeping in the middle of his loft. And he's That's like, right. dude. And he he throws him into the shower. He peels his dirty painting shirt off of him and literally burns it in the middle of his <laughs> studio and is like, dude, you need to put on some nice clothes. You need to go outside. Yeah. You need to go and experience something. You need to get out of this sulk that you're in. And then they pick up uh, Candy, his uh, reference model, uh, at the uh, local grocery store on their on their way back. And I do. They are pretty forward about uh, picking her up where they're just like, hey, we know you're getting groceries, but would you you know, would you like like for us to come hang out with us or maybe have dinner with us and she's like i'm holding a bag of groceries and he's like, like i'm, I'm going a great home cook. like and then i, I also yeah. love there's that one line where he's like all right we'll go to your place i'm a great cook and then blue actually is, he's like he is actually a really good cook <laughs> yeah we're not like blowing steam yeah. like yeah he, he's yeah, he will actually cook for you cut to uh <laughs> eli in like a her pink apron cooking for her in her kitchen mm-hmm. just another great you know just Dixon like there's there's a romantic element to this actually like yeah. there is like there's a little bit of a dance in the candlelight and they do eventually go like look we're both very attracted to you yeah and, uh, and we sweet. both want to sleep with you yeah, and the way it plays out, like it's it's very sweet. Like it doesn't actually, even though it's you know it's obviously a very sex forward film, and this scene in particular is like a pretty, I guess, graphic sex scene. But it feels more emotionally graphic than it does, you know, physically graphic. And that's because it Definitely. doesn't seem particularly horny. Like these two guys aren't like I'll do anything I can to just like I just want like another you know check off the box or or whatever. Um, that's not what they're doing. They're like like I said before, Blue is really doing this. Sorry, Eli's really doing this to help Blue, uh, and yeah. every all these choices they make are just uh, you know because they're doing it as a favor or not as a favor, but just to, yeah they really want they really care about each other. Uh, well, it really pays attention to the way that they look at each other and trade out when it eventually happens oh, yeah. because like Eli is kind of into it and then he's kind of like, well, I'm actually trying to change my lifestyle and not do this. So he kind of right. just you know he kind of moves out of the way and he's. Just just like all right steps aside you got this buddy yeah Yeah. take 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 your go before that too it's interesting because like like you were mentioning for instance when he's he's like actually he is a good cook um there's a i i didn't write them down specifically but there's a couple other lines too when they're kind of courting candy a little bit for this this threesome um, they're complimenting each other, and it's and they're doing it through her, but it's mm. as if they want to <laughs> say it to each other, but just don't <laughs> like do it. Because they are constantly going back and forth, but through the, like, candy, isn't he like this? And it, it's just <laughs> them complimenting each other, and I found that to be really fascinating. Um, I also got to say, I love... Candy. Mm-hmm. I, I oh, yeah, love, I think um, she's a great performance. Uh, she Carol is Wayne. the heart of the film. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I really love the way that she's just she's so into having these uh, the attention of these two kind of attractive men in, you know, in, in her uh, her apartment. 
and she's just she's so stoked about it and when it eventually does turn into the whole like sweaty neon pink striptease sequence that you would expect of kind of like an 80s threesome sequence or something where she is literally like undressing in front of them and dancing around although there is this amazing focus on this like crazy flower shaped mirror that she has in, oh, yeah. in, in her apartment there's actually two shots of it there's the shot of her dancing in it which like looks great obviously but then there's the follow-up shot which i think is even stronger of just the shot of um eli and blue both sitting on the bed kind of looking towards one another inside this kind of abstract Total mirror piece. moment <laughs> Right. Yes, yeah. it's so <laughs> gorgeous and such a moment. Look at each them. other in their eyes and then take their underwear off at the exact same time. <laughs> at the same time, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a bro moment right there. That's just that's bromance to yeah to the highest yeah. degree. They yeah they they kind of share all of this stuff together, including Eli's kind of you know not exactly a walk of shame, but there is like a you know he he wasn't as into it as Blue was, and there is this you know th- that walk through that like dingy shipping yard that they kind of and it's like five in the morning you, too, so you're almost seeing like the morning light kind of peeking out, which kind of yeah gives it yeah. such an interesting edge. Yeah, and it's interesting, yeah. like, Eli has a couple moments, and it's usually after, like, he meets a new woman or there's a date, and he says things like, uh, I'm going to marry her. And it comes off kind of like a joke <laughs> or whatever, but there is definitely in there just this truth that he's like, man, I wish I could find a genuine connection. And yeah, so it, it kind of makes that scene a little bit, I don't know if it's sad exactly, but it, it's sadder than what you would anticipate this uh, kind of party threesome scene to be well the the way that it kind of fucks with candy is a little bit sad to me because the way that it like messes with their dynamic during Mm -hmm. the the painting session that she has where like she shows up to the next session and wants to sort of continue that that passion that existed between her and blue during that that threesome sequence and you know like not necessarily be treated as like the thing that he stages in the middle of his studio where he doesn't even really seem to ever talk to her. He just kind of like moves her elbow or something. It's like, okay, there you go. Now you're in the right position. And his, and his whole thing he says is like, I want that heat to be in the paintings only, which (laughs) is like, you know, it it feels kind of like, like bullshit. And she, she calls him out on it, which I like too, is just like bullshit. You loved every minute of that. Like, yeah. Like we were there in the moment with them. It was genuinely sensual. There was genuine heat between them. And I also like the detail that she brings up that like, he's never actually even like asked her about her personal life in the whole time that they've been like working together. And, and the little details she gives about her background where she was just like, I did bad in school. Um, I didn't want to be a secretary and, um, I have a great chest, so that's how I'm yeah. here. You know, <laughs> Yeah. now you know my story. <laughs> yeah. And she seems like the way she plays it too is great. Cause there's kind of like a, a confidence to her. Um, but there's also this kind of tiredness to her character a little bit where it's just like, mm-hmm. like, I think she's proud of, of the modeling and what, and the work that she's done. But it, because of that, and you see it with like blue, um, for instance, when he gets called, his art gets called like fetishistic. And the more you kind of unravel the relationship between him and Candy, it's kind of hard to deny that it isn't, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, well, he, at a certain point, he literally just admits it is, which is one of my favorite sure. scenes, actually. When, <laughs> sure. when, when, when he just straight up goes, yeah, well, when I was young, I found like an old porno magazine of my dad's and it had like a woman in heels and I liked the forbidden nature of it and it was just hot. So now yeah. I do. I've been chasing that it. dragon ever <laughs> since. Yeah. <laughs> 
And, yeah. I, and I think with Candy, I think that like 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 you said, Jamie, that like you know she's kind of tired. I, I think a lot of it is that she's exhausted. Of I think part of her whole shtick or her her job is kind of playing dumb and like acting like an idiot yes. just because of you know her her assets that you know she she knows exactly what she has she knows how to use them but part of that is yeah. kind of dumbing her personality down i think she's just tired of pretending to be stupid uh mm-hmm. and that and that's why that, you raise that yeah, it's, that's it's why heartbreaking that scene is so good yeah. her to explode and like actually cuz really it's like the first time she has uh, a lot to say, like mm-hmm. it, like you said, I guess, yeah. Like it, it really is the the only time that she has like lengthy dialogue, um, and it's her finally expressing herself truly instead of uh, just taking directions because she's probably you know she's been a model or an actress her life her whole life. So yeah, yeah. To quote, mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I was looking at uh, Ebert's review, and uh, he absolutely rightly said that. Well, to to quote him, he said her performance is so good, so heartbreaking, if you will, that it pulls the whole movie together. <laughs> And uh, that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. I think it, it really is kind of like the load-bearing wall of, of this film. It, everything kind of revolves around it, and it causes everything in her vicinity mm-hmm. to kind of work as well. Yeah, yeah, and there is kind of like a mature conclusion to it a little bit too when he eventually does kind of get his paintings of her up, and he does feel like he's accomplished this, and he doesn't need to draw any more of them, and he doesn't necessarily need her any anymore. But it's not this like cruel scene where he's mm-hmm. like, we're done, and you're going to go do something else. It is like, a, you know, I'm... I got this thing out of my system and that means we're no longer going to work together, but can I kiss you? And he actually does give her one last genuinely romantic moment with him that, that she, you know, that he knows that she wants I love that um, moment. As, as a result. It's I so love good. It so much. She calls him heartbreaker. <laughs> and that's where the title comes from too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah like yeah. that's, it, she is that important to the, to the film in that way. And, and she is symbolic of how, just messy and vulnerable and constantly shifting the relationships in, in the film are like how fast they will change with the heat of passion, like in the moment that they have with her and how it does also speak to the sort of transactional nature of the relationship that some of these characters have too. the way that he treats her like an object, the way that he uses her for his art and doesn't necessarily uh, respect her artistry of being involved in that. And, you know, she is, she is, uh, you know, in some ways framed like a chesty Morgan Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, don't, Doris Wishman used her all the time for a reason. Yeah, she is. Uh, she is a screen presence. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such, yeah. a, it's such a perfect example of how, again, just like how they write these two lead characters and how like they're they're not perfect. You know, they're not perfect guys. They do fuck up. They are selfish. They are, you know, they they do like they don't use people. There, there's various things that make them. You know, they deserve kind of all some of the bad things that have happened to them, but they get called on all those things and there's a reckoning with it. And I feel like it's just, there's just such an honesty to how they are just kind of growing, learning human beings who exactly. uh, Yeah. They get, uh, they, they understand who they are and they, and, and so do we as the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think too, the way that it kind of parallels, like we do kind of know at a certain point that these two guys are both going to be landing on the, um, same woman, but it, it does take so long to get there that I was actually not convinced that it was going to happen in the way that I had read it described when reading people talk about the film. Cause I was like, really, it is kind of her relationship with Eli for most of the film where he really does want romance. And he's kind of finally found the, you know, someone that he feels like he could get it from someone he's immediately struck with and, and is interested in in that way. And, uh, you know, so he is pursuing 
Lillianne, but she is treating him like he used to treat women, where she yeah. only wants to have right. sex in her car with him so that he can't sleep over. Or that when almost she... sounds like a like an American Pie presents setup or something. Yeah. But it's just so it's so like it, it's it's done. It, with it such is like humanity. a sex comedy trope a little bit. It feels like yeah, yeah. yeah but this is done with just such humanity. So they, like Roth kills it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, again, again, a maturity to it. I love yeah, yeah. that moment when uh, she does let him into the bed at one point and it's during the day so that, again, he can't sleep over. And uh, it's done in this uh, this greatly sort of geometrically framed shot of her in her mirror. And there's a big sort of line split in between them while she's looking in it and he's sitting in the bed and he can tell that she's already moving on to whatever she's going to do with the rest of her day. She's either because I think they meet at the gym, which is actually I think what Brandon was talking mm -hmm. about, because that's the, the woman from he takes home in the opening she's is uh, the gym instructor yeah she's the aerobics right. instructor who's actually teaching the class that him and Lillianne both attend where they run into one another um but the scene when um they're in her bedroom and uh he just looks at her and he stares at her for a while she kind of catches it and looks back at him and he just says leave the money on the dresser <laughs> basically <laughs> suggesting you know obviously that he he's a gigolo yeah. and that's what this dynamic is between them but doing it in kind of a joking um way and it's just yeah like that that does kind of and then yeah it, it kind of hits her in that way that yeah you know the, that's sort of what this is and that is what ultimately gets things really compli complicated in the last reel when they both go to Lillian in the nightclub well this, this is one thing i'll say Bobby, I love you. Love as a battlefield was maybe a little, little <laughs> much. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> it's a jam, though. Man, it's a great song. And it it's, it's a great song. It is a great song. <laughs> uh, it looked good at that nightclub. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but you know, she starts actually kind of being interested in both of them and dancing with uh, with Blue and, and, and kissing him. And, man, some of the framing on the way that... Uh, Eli is watching them and when they even try to bring him into it it's like you know come on dance with us and he's just like no I like to watch and that big push in on him smoking that cigarette and just like the anger and torment kind of yeah. in his face of just you know is just it's the brutal. complete it's opposite like of Pacino yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Carlito's way. Yeah, we brought that up last week. Oh, yeah, that's, that's funny. funny. <laughs> well, I think that it's interesting because it, it, it's almost like he's like haunted by the fact that he feels like this like prisoner. He's someone who actually does want to have a long term relationship. He does want to settle down, but it's not just that. Like he's stuck in this, uh, you know, this routine of one night stands. Is that that's how women see him? Nobody has any yeah. interest. Mm. All these women that he meet and he has these like connections with, they're all kind of just disposable. And the way that he's perceived by women is just as like, you know, oh, he's good to like sleep with one night, but they don't really want anything to do with him. And to, to yep. an outsider, that seems like such a, you know, perfect life. Like, oh, you're so lucky. You're handsome. You're fit. You get to sleep around with a, you have a new girl every night. But he's like, yeah, but that's not my choice. Like, that's not what I want. That's somebody else's choice. Yeah, well, and, and it ended up it ends up really forming a, a break between the two men where Eli actually does take start taking his anger out during their squash game. Mm -hmm. And it does like actually escalate pretty roughly into like actual fighting. And yeah. I think Blue is a little bit taken aback by why it was because he was like, dude, we just did the same thing with Lillianne that we we did with. With with candy, like we we kind of wingmanned each other a little bit. We had a good time, right? Like the, you know, there was what 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 changed, <laughs> and and what changed is that you can tell that like, oh, you're someone that people fall in love with. I'm not. Nobody ever falls in love with me. They just want to sleep with me. But for some reason, Blue has this quality yes. that women fall in love with him, and that's what he wants. 
he's got that mm-hmm. teenager outsider artist yeah. uh, roughness yeah. to him, you know. <laughs> he's a mysterious yeah. man. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah, there. That's where the jealousy starts to come in between between the two characters, um, especially. And I, I do like that sort of like after the fight um, sequence where Blue does do a little bit of soul seeking, and it's in that great sort of like uh, vista shot of the L.A. skyline with him on that ceiling, oh, and it's yeah. just like the pink sky and him in his jeans and his leather jacket. I was just what a great shot, and the Tangerine Dream score playing too. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's a. Uh, I I was just uh, the, the mood of this thing because we were talking a lot a lot about mood for Mike's murder as well, but I don't know there there was something to the fact that you know sometimes this film will just use a shot and a synth and it'll be like that's enough. There's the emotion uh, kind of of this moment and uh, the writing is is good enough to kind of hang it on. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, that's a good yeah. way of putting it. And and yeah, those those shots and some of those those images are just like just release every endorphin that I have in me. Uh, yes. I feel the same way because I think a lot of people look at the 80s and they do look at that kind of like pop, um, I don't know, like sort of commercial element of it and they get a little turned off by it. But I don't know. There's something about the, the 80s mood every once in a while. It's, it's just, it's that's enough for me. It sells it. a movie. You can tell. I mean, I, I think a lot of the, the structure of the film and how the film looks probably comes from him working with Michael Mann and doing Miami Vice. And he kind of took that. And he's mm-hmm. like, what if I took that aesthetic, but, you know, used it in a different way? And I think that's exactly what this does. And uh, it does so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, but but also like it was something that man understood too. It lends itself to sensitivity yeah. if you let it. Like it lends itself to characters just gazing tenderly and thinking about their lives. Mm-hmm. And you know you can actually heighten. You know, I mean, he would do it in a little bit more of a macho kind of tough way. Um, but uh, you know, it's just there. There is an aspect to it where it really does get it kind of all the way out of you. And I think Bobby also, you know, has the added benefit that he has actually written some very detailed and, and kind of rich. Um, characters uh, to it as well. And there's there's even some small moments in this that I was quite surprised by. Because again, this is pretty early in his career where, you know, I mean, maybe again, it helps that he's working with a veteran cinematographer who had already mm-hmm. done so many great uh, films at the time. But like, there are even just like great edits in this. One of my favorite edits in the whole film that I actually had to go back and watch to make sure that I didn't like imagine it because it was so fast. I was like, did that cut happen? Did he do that? Uh, is the one when he uh, is... Uh, uh, Blue goes over to King's uh, place, and obviously there's that amazing uh, elevator shot from the POV of him going into his elevator up into his uh, like, like his loft yeah. where all his art is and everything like that. And he tries to stomach his kind of hatred of the dude's art to mend the relationship. And it, it obviously this scene kind of does summarize the dramatics of of the film a little bit in in a way. But it's a funny scene. Because the dude, as I kind of mentioned, he does just seem really nice and better yeah. and kind of kinder than him. And he kind of does slowly come to realize that over uh, the course of the scene. And I think you were talking about the part where, you know, where he was trying to compliment his his art. And I think he said something along the lines of like, yeah, I, thanks. But uh, Sid told me you think ab- abstractionists should be executed, um, <laughs> which is just a really funny line that he gives him. But at, r- around that moment is a part where he looks over at his bed because King also has a similar thing where, you know, his entire sort of working space is also his bedroom, but he actually does have a bed at least, you know, (laughs) and next to the bed, he's just a bigger, stronger version of himself. (laughs) Exactly. He's the same thing. But, and, and, uh, but there's the great moment where he looks over at the bed and there is a flash cut to Sid's heels next to the bed. And obviously it's like a little bit of jealousy. Like he's having sex with, 
you know, someone I love and there's her heel, but it's also the heel that yeah. inspired him from his dad's mm-hmm. magazine. And he's kind of connecting all of these dots at once. And again, it's just, it, it's intelligent writing flowing into images like that. And this movie is really populated with, there's not enough time to get into it. Like actually how yeah. much moments no. like that actually occur. There, Cause there's, yeah, there's, there's, oh, there's hundreds of them. Um, but I do love it. That scene is so great. It works on so many different levels because it is one of the funniest scenes in the movie, but it's also one of the most infuriating because, well, obviously he goes there kind of like looking to pick a fight with this guy who stole his girlfriend and he tries really hard. He comes in fully loaded and uh, <laughs> he tries everything. But then realizing like, Oh, this guy, he's not going to take the bait. He's, he's just such a nice and not just nice, but like, reasonable guy uh, and then yeah, eventually yeah. he just kind of gives up and he's like you know King offers him a beer and he's just like yeah I'll take a beer and then, and then they just, <laughs> he just kind of like sighs and he's like alright I guess we're just going to have a conversation you actually do seem like a pretty alright guy and walks in and is like freaked out she's just Sid like what well, the thing and she's like what the hell is this and then he, immediately you're like oh this is actually very sweet like they these two guys could become friends and then immediately he takes it away by going over to Sid and being like screw this guy like we're gonna to get back together and you're like no yeah. You've <laughs> yeah, i've was, changed I yeah think that's he right, says. Changed. <laughs> yeah and he and he there's something and i kind of like it in in the just the the character writing of blue is mm-hmm. that even by the end of this uh with with the last interaction he has with sid there is still this like do you want to come away with me kind mm-hmm. of thing where like the i think the last question he asks her is or he doesn't it's not a question he just says i wish you waited for me and there's something in there that is still like, hey, is there like maybe you still could? You know what I mean? Like it, it's like I'm still here. Well, because I, I I think he goes, this is attainable. Like if I have mm-hmm. a good show, I could put a bed yes. in my fucking right. loft. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So he's like just, he was just scoping kind of up just the joint to see on. if he could actually do it. Yeah, and that's kind of the moment yeah. where you're like, oh, he really does not deserve her. Uh, and then there's that no, like, yeah. and then you're like, I really hope I actually change it. I'm like, I really hope he doesn't get together with her. Like, like and it doesn't end in that like traditional rom com way where he does win her back because I really don't think that he does deserve her. I think she is better off with King. No, he hasn't learned anything. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. 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 No, it, it, it takes the, like, really dramatic, um, like, him actually finding the success that he's been um, uh, looking for, which is done in this really interesting way where, you know, he, he finishes all of his paintings, he gets an art gallery going, everyone kind of funnels in, and he does get the sort of, like, critics' respect for the first time. He does get people, he is actually making money, he's actually sold some of the art and is actually getting thousands of dollars for, mm-hmm. for the work, and he's just like, I, 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 this situation has inspired me to become the success that Sid was saying I wasn't and was leaving me for. Um, but he does kind of still have this empty feeling at the end of it because that's really wasn't it that wasn't the entire that was part of it um but it wasn't the entire thing and i love that framing of him in his art gallery after the party is over and it's just filth on the ground like the sort of champagne glasses and all of the sort of like after after effects of the party on the ground and him just like with his like head between his knees practically like leaning up against the wall while everyone else who's financially invested in him is kind of standing around him um and uh and and also that Eli doesn't show up, which is kind of one of the also big things that also kind of hurts him in that in that moment. And for Eli, I think he says it's because, you know, look at this guy. He's lapping up all of the praise from like the people who abandoned 
him and like don't actually only like him when he's successful and he's just like i cared for him when he was at his lowest when i actually had to like literally pull him out of his fucking place to get him to get up in the morning and keep working and that kind of stuff so again this is like it's a very mature relationship dynamics that result in him making a really crazy decision that he's just like screw eli he didn't show up lillian is here we're going to have sex. And he, there is like a, you know, the, the way that she kind of like moves towards him and like, she's wearing like a, a dress with two parts to it. So she takes the, the top part off and then goes over and sits on him. The yeah. only part of the uh, whole exchange that was, um, I wasn't like a hundred percent sold on, or I, maybe I just wanted a little bit more of Lillianne is the sort of regretful aftermath when she kind of gets up and goes and, and cries into the sort of like reflection that we see the that she obviously very much regrets it. Eli. Right, right, right. Yeah. Which I totally get like, it's, and it's a good shot and it's a good moment. She performs yeah. it well. It was one of those things where, I, I don't I, I didn't quite see the um, uh, transition from nightclub Lillianne to that Lillianne like on screen. I feel like she maybe could have been given another scene right. to get there. But it is it, it oh, is still like I, I, I get the idea and it, and it works still. And I do like that he's in the middle like they're in the middle of all his fetishistic paintings or whatever of candy. It, that's a great well. detail. Yeah. Just be, surrounding <laughs> them. Um, but yeah, I guess this is where it leads into the uh, the, the diner scene. Am I right? Which is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. We're talking about the the final diner scene? Yes. This floored me. I was like blown away. This is the one we should probably tell people that like if you haven't seen the movie and plan on seeing it at the end dreams, you should probably stop listening. Yes. Yes. If if anyone does want to avoid maybe spoilers, this because the the dramatic crux of the film in a way is is sort of this. So if you don't want to hear about it, feel free. And you are going to come to the screening, which if if you are in Toronto, you should be going to this Neon Dream screening. Definitely. Definitely. But man, this scene is so but, uh, good. I, uh, I, I couldn't believe so it when I saw it. Like, I, I think I like jumped out of my seat. Like, I, again, like we've, we've brought the word up vulnerability so many times, but like in this scene, like that's what I mean by like it, this vulnerability hits a level that's like, it's so public and so embarrassing that, yeah. oh yeah. my God, I almost like, it was, it was almost like it's hard to see, but oh, yeah. it's so powerful. He makes it like Roth makes a point to have when he's going through this final breakdown, to have it in front of everyone and to have everybody in that diner just staring the entire yeah. time. Like, it's just a man yeah. exposed, essentially. Um, like a Yeah, because, because, it, because it is like Peter Coyote saying to him very bluntly in the same way that he would kind of say it in a way that he would kind of hurt people in a way. But he's he, it's confessional, and at the same time, he's being blunt in the way that he just kind of is as a person. And he goes, I fucked Lillianne. Yeah. Which is like of you know, and he knows what it means when he says that to him that he's like he's gonna be really hurting Eli when he says it. And Eli gets up and says, "Some friend you are," puts the money on the table and goes to leave. And what's interesting is that this is where you would feel like any other movie would play up the melodrama, and in a way this this does, but they would play it up in the macho way. They would have these guys get into a fight in the diner, yeah. and they'd be like, "Look at this ridiculous farcical they'd flailing both man them fighting each other, over a woman." And they'd be like, "Well, you did this, yeah, but you did this," and like then. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That that is how this scene would be directed by anyone who's not Bobby Roth. And in this case, it is like it's love. Peter Coyote. <laughs> instead, he 
cries and he and sobs so horribly like loudly that anyone crying, in yeah. a vicinity outside the diner if you were outside the diner walking on the sidewalk you would probably see this man in a puddle of his own tears and it it actually embarrasses eli so much that he's like telling him stop, stop it. it like cut it out please. Right now, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah like don't do this and then begins one of the most beautifully awkward embraces i've ever seen in a film where eli the instincts to care for his friend that he's had throughout the entire film kick in and he he hugs him and he grabs him he basically and it's holds slow... him too that first time because yeah. like blue looks like yeah. he's hugging him because blue's still sitting down and eli's standing up after almost leaving so he's yeah. kind of like surrounding his hips and it's just like this it's it, it's just a, a man at his last straw man it's 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 pretty powerful stuff well, and that slow walk they have to do He's in front of everyone watching it. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. it, 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 he walks him out to the bench outside, and just the, the staging of it is so real and strange. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like one of those, just like those moments that happen to someone in real life. And then when I was watching the interview with Bobby Roth, he basically just confirmed that, that this, he was like, this whole movie was, came from the scene, that this scene actually happened to him in real life. And he was the one crying like a baby. And it happened <laughs> with him when in his best, with his best friend who actually oh, did man. work on this movie, by the way, too. He's in the credits. He of the also film. said that he was completely um, right for this friend to be like, I'm totally done with you. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> Like he was admitting, like yeah, there's a little bit of self-loathing yeah. baked into the Peter Coyote character for sure. Totally. Um, and and yeah, and the, immediately he was like, "This scene happened to me in real life. All of these emotions happened. I came up with." And I think the line in the interview is, "He's just like, it, it made me wonder why are men so shut down? Why have I never cried in front of my friend before? Why have I never told my friend these things that I feel like we should be able to talk about these things?" And he was like, "The whole movie." was written backwards from this scene as a result, from this feeling. He wanted to get you to this feeling. And then so many of the details that get you there kind of make sense. And that was why, again, sort of like Mike's Murder, I feel like as it went along, the movie kind of recontextualized and revealed itself. And uh, yeah, this moment where they're just sitting on, on the bench and he's just like, you know, I hated you and I hated myself for my petty feelings of hating you. And, uh, you know, it was just like, uh, what's the other line, too, that we're not yeah, kids, we're not anymore. kids anymore. Ooh, yeah. that one cut deep. <laughs> That's yeah. harsh. He's and, and I love to. He's like, I know. And then but then it's followed up with, you know, but like, I'm still your friend. He's like, I know. And again, just so awkward <laughs> and so hug. beautiful. And 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 the crane. The crane up while they're sitting on the bench on just some like random corner in L.A. It's it's wonderful. It's such yeah, a human moment this, happening um, in such a dingy space. I love it. Yeah. And in that moment, too, when it starts to crane up, they go back to their kind of like relaxed friendship state a little bit, too. Like he's just like he's Eli's got his arm around him and stuff, but they just seem more mm-hmm. like at ease after finally like truly embracing each other as as men who clearly love each other um it's uh it, yeah it's a beautiful moment like i hated you because you had someone who loved you like it's just them expressing everything that you've seen for the last hour and a half but finally to each other yeah and it's uh finding the words it's, to it's, say it yeah it's great exactly. it's it's awesome yeah it's 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 a beautiful beautiful ending yeah 
Yeah, and I think if we are maybe uh, pivoting towards the reductive rating round, this one was also a very um, a, a very solid four for me, and I kind of can't wait to go back to it at some point. Um, I think, again, if you are into just like, you know, uh, romance comedy, uh, but also like buddy movies and hangout movies, and you like this sort of era of Los Angeles and the 1980s, and you have you have a lot that you are going to be getting out of this just watching like, like uh, the 80s, just like LA hangout vibes are very strong watching these two actors sort of project all these unresolved emotions they have onto all of these great moments of just getting drunk and playing squash and hitting up burger joints and having three sums and like if you're interested in that this is all shot by fucking Michael Bauhaus <laughs> and scored to Tangerine Dream like if you just want to get lost in the framing and the lush sort of sensual atmospherics of it all this is totally that movie which is why I will recommend to everyone who's going to be going to Neon Dreams and going to the screening of it like I, I'm going to go again just for to experience that score and those images in that kind of setting because like totally yeah. if that's all you're going into this movie for it delivers but Bobby Roth is also a gifted writer and filmmaker. And as a result, you also have a very raw confessional story of male friendship and men who don't know how to communicate with each other, navigating the sort of mess that they create by not having those modes of communication and slowly learning them over the course of the film. And the details of it are so clearly autobiographical in detail too. You know, Bobby Ross own life growing up and hanging out with his friends and hanging out in these specific locations that I don't know, there's a, there is real authenticity to it. And, um, you know, beyond just how, you know, well framed and how smartly cut the film can be at times. I just yeah, I, I found it incredibly moving um, and the the ending especially, which uh, did make me go, oh, man, I got to watch this. It, it, I finished the movie immediately and that ending just made me go. Oh man, I gotta turn it on again. I gotta, yeah. I gotta see them get to this place again because it, it's so deceptive. It feels like yeah. it's almost aimless in a way, but it is totally not. It's getting you to a very, very beautifully staged moment um, that is just so awkward and so real. Um, and yeah, and like, yeah, you don't very, see it very coming, well just like they don't see it coming as characters in a way. Yeah, and 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 again to also do this and have it done in this era and be as kind as it is uh, to not just the two men and the and Peter Coyote, who is typically the kind of character you would see in a movie like this, who is more brash and more violent and kind of over the top um, versus, but, but to have it also apply to all the women in the film as well. And, you know, I think, I think Sid gets some really nice moments. I think Candy gets some of the best moments in the film. Um, and uh, yeah, like, you know, it, it, it kind of delivers on all fronts. So this was very solid for me. Yeah, I am uh, right there with you. I think it's a four. Uh, it's, it's really great. I, it is interesting that we were talking about things like, some of these premises almost remind you of like certain sex comedies or something, but there's just some, so much humanity and compassion built into it that it just kind mm -hmm. of, uh, it, it, it exceeds that. It's, it's awesome. Um, it, yeah, I love just watching two men try to verbalize how much they loved each other for, for 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> finally, finally finding it and embracing and hugging it out. It's, it's, it, it is a oddly beautiful story by the, by the end of it. Um, it, even though you're going through a lot of self-destruction uh, to get there. Um, it's, uh, and aerobics. Yeah, yeah and aerobics, uh, uh, as mm. is tradition in the 80s, apparently. There's, there's a lot of aerobics, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's shot the hell out of by Michael Bauhaus. It's, um, uh, I think Roth has a really kind of uh, uh, empathetic and compassionate way of directing and writing, too, of course. 
Um, yeah, I think this is great. Great performances all around. I mean, Peter Coyote and Nick Mancuso are, are of course, fantastic. But Carol Wayne, I think, is an especially good, um, I don't know, if I guess, supporting role. Uh, I think she's she's awesome. And, and even though has not too much dialogue when it happens, there's just a lot of significance to it. And No, but really again, sometimes shows. just framing a character like this intelligently, like how they do it when she's just used as an object in yes. his painting space and stuff, like she's a presence in those scenes still. As she's being kind of like uh, directed and, and modeled yeah. and placed and stuff, you can kind of see like this, um, I don't know, this, this kind of like... Uh, like she's misunderstood and, and has more to express than what is actually being shown. Um, so yeah. when she gets that moment, it's, it's huge and it feels great. So, uh, yeah, this is awesome. I'd, I'd highly recommend it. It is hard to, to find just like the, the other one. I think this has like 600 logs on letterbox or something like that. So incredibly, yeah, we need to get those numbers up. Yeah. Those are rookie so numbers. Let's, let's go peeps. We, yeah. We'll get them. We'll get them up. It's, it's awesome. Four out of five. For you, Brendan. Um, I uh, the rating is so hard, but I mean, I, just to give it like a review. I mean, it, it really does fall into the same category as Mike's Murder in the way that like I love a film that you can really feel the director in it and the, just the filmmaker's presence. And I feel that in this case, Bobby mm. Roth really does almost feel like he's one of the characters in the movie. And I don't mean just like that he is like um you know that uh, Blue and Eli are mouthpiece for him. I just mean like the way that he frames everything, the, his approach to it, it really does feel so personal. And just the way that LA looks like it, it could only be shot that way from someone who actually lives there and actually understands the city. So you really feel him in, and uh, you really feel him in as part of the film. And uh, that just like, that's what really pulled me into it. Uh, and of course I could repeat everything that you both just said, like this movie looks the way that I wish every movie in the world looked uh, and felt. And, uh, but that, that aside as someone who <laughs> kind of like, you know, works a, uh, a tech job, like a desk job during the day and works in film at night, I kind of can feel both of those pulls. So I was immediately drawn to these characters. Um, and like you said, I mean, Carol Wayne is so wonderful, and I, it, it's very sad that she's not with us anymore. I won't get into it because it's a very sad story, but she did unfortunately pass away. Mm. And uh, I don't know, everything about it just uh, it just works for me. And I got it. I think I gave it a four and a half on Letterboxd, but now I feel like conflicted about that because that means I don't like it as much as Mike's Murder. The whole rating system is all screwy <laughs> to me. So just it for is. the sake of uh, throwing a number out there, why not? I'm going to give it a five. Um, Let's go. And I do want to end by saying this film is available again uh, by Fun City Editions, who are their subsidiary yep. of Vinegar Syndrome, and they put out this beautiful. It's like the restoration is gorgeous, but also just the packaging. It's wonderful. I'm literally looking at it right now. Yeah. It's great. Uh, the packaging, the it. features. It's just such a thoughtful package, uh, and in that way yep. that like I kind of miss it. I wish that more films would be presented that way. Uh, so I really do recommend check out Fun's Editions, buy a copy. Uh, you will not regret it. And uh, yeah, if you're in Toronto, uh, Friday, yes. May 26th is when it's screening. Yep. Uh, I can definitely recommend that if you want to run into me. Actually, maybe you don't want to run into me, so I won't say that. I won't be there. You can, but go go to Neon Dreams May twenty sixth for sure. Heartbreakers, um, like I, 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 you know, we aren't overstating it. The pure atmospherics of the film are going to be worth seeing in that setting, regardless of how you feel about the rest of it. Yeah. And the rest of it is also great. <laughs> so, yeah. 
in, very much uh, show up and 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 enjoy. Um, but uh, yeah, Brendan, thanks so much uh, for for joining us. I think that this is gonna uh, wrap it up for um, this week's uh, episode. That was Mike's murder from 1984, as well as Heartbreakers from 1984. Uh, again, thanks for bringing these films to us. And yeah. you know, these are very underseen films. These are films I might not have got around to for a little while. So I'm very happy, and I very much uh, enjoyed them both. Uh, if you've got, do you have anything else you want to plug here other than the screening? Do you have other Neon Dream stuff that you might want to talk about? This is usually where we have people plug stuff so uh, yeah no not really i'm on instagram at neon dream cinema <laughs> uh, follow, i do monthly screenings at the review cinema uh so yeah follow me i've always posting all my stuff there and uh yeah just thanks guys for having me on this has been a pleasure and uh, i appreciate you being so accommodating and uh i'm really glad that you like the movies Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it, it's 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 not something that I think anyone else would have thought to to brought on and heartbreakers mm-hmm. based on genre alone, you know, uh, not something necessarily we might have got around to, but I think there is definitely enough in here in the terms of the uh the environment it was shot in and some of the uh the, yeah. the sort of tropes that it's using definitely still still fit the show. This definitely mm-hmm. feels like, you know, everything you do at Neon Dreams is very much stuff that, you know, we have a lot of similar sensibilities in terms of things we like to see in movies. Um so uh yeah, everyone Go to that. Uh, for our uh, listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time uh, where we are, uh, as Jamie mentioned, uh, we're going to be going uh, Ed Wood mode uh, for the first yes. time on the show. It's been a little while, uh, and Jamie and I are not the most uh, well-versed Ed Wood uh, aficionados, so yeah, we are actually going to be starting... No, I've only seen clips. Uh, so yeah. we are going to be starting from the beginning uh, because we have a guest who actually picked it in two weeks' time. Spoiler alert. And he kind of picked sort of similar to Brendan. He picked kind of a deep cut. So I was like, we need to get familiar with Ed Wood before we talk about an Ed Wood deep cut. So we are going to do the big one, the one everyone expects, uh, mm-hmm. Plan 9 from Outer Space and Glenn or Glenda. But I'm very interested in finally getting a look at these. And obviously, this is not a bad movie podcast. So we are not going to be just right. trying to roast these movies. We are going to be giving Ed Wood very much a, a fair shot. I'm actually reading his book right now, Hollywood Rat Race. And I got to say, I'm really enjoying myself about halfway through it. And his tips and tricks, a little, a couple of them are delusional. A couple of them (laughs) are just wonderful and revealing about how he thinks and how wonderful he is uh, just based on how he writes. So um, I'll definitely be talking about that when we jump into that. Yep. We will be talking about that in one week's time over on the Patreon uh, exclusively uh, for anyone who's interested. And then in two weeks time, uh, we are going to be back doing some deep cuts. Uh, We're going to be talking about one takeout in trade. And then I'm actually blanking on what the other one was, but I think it was like an Ed Wood, like softcore porno. And uh, if you if you can't imagine who the guest was already, it's Mr. Will Sloan. We're doing a Toronto (laughs) month uh, here on the show because, you know, he is the the Ed Wood uh, kind of expert. He's the my go to when I was asking him for recommendations. I was like, this is this is the guy you go to. So we're going to do takeout and trade. And then, oh, this other one, the, the only house in town is uh, what it's okay. called. And for anyone once again, though, for anyone who's uh, interested in watching along with the show, these are the easiest ones you could possibly watch. They're like 60 minutes and 50 minutes or something like that. So we're going to have a wonderful time with Ed Wood over the next two weeks of the show. And but that being said, that will wrap it up for everything this week. It's been a little long, so we got it. We got to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks so much, as always, for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy, everybody. Keep it sleazy, guys. <laughs>